Emergency medicine extract with Sanjay and Mike. Hello, Dr. Michael Minchin. Hello, Dr. Sanjay Aurora. How have you been of late? Uh, I'd say I've been uh, I've been neutral, medium, fair. Yeah, fair. I've been uh, you know, and then uh, yeah, we're in honor of the late Jeff Sipsy, who was a yeah. physician at uh, at County. Um, who coined he, the term. Fair. Coined the term fair. How are you doing, Jeff? Fair. Yeah. <laughs> Never fair. good. He really nailed that. Yeah, I'm. I'd say I'm. Well, you know, I work's been busy and home life is stressful, and you know, it's just it is what it is. Oh, poor Sanjay. Yeah. You feel it's summertime. It's summer. Yeah, we the summer. It, it's summer July first as we're taping. Summer's dead to me. <laughs> July first as we're taping. So September first as you're listening, or later, depending on how delinquent you are in your in, in your EMA listenership. And I think you know we should talk about summer plans. Yeah, well, that's a very short discussion for me. <clears throat> Hold on, we don't have any. And <laughs> what? Well, Amanda's uh, family is coming to visit for a little bit, and um, you know we're gonna. Rent a, like an Airbnb for three days. That counts as summer plans. That's that it, sounds so. like a delightful, relaxing, wholesome time. Yeah, let's get <laughs> let's get eight family members and multiple kids <laughs> under one roof in a in a totally unfamiliar house. But yeah. we don't know where anything is, where the where to go get food, where you know, and let's have some good old fashioned fun. <laughs> Perfect. Count me. In. See, I'm like the opposite. I have like endless summer plans this year. And I honestly, I know it's, it's like a you know, first world problem, but I really don't want to do them. I'm tired, man. It's been a long time. And ideally, I would do like the summer version of Hibernol. Wow. <laughs> Excellent. Chris Farley reference out yeah. of that live. Yeah. Hibernol. Just sleep you, through it. You just, you just take the jug of, of uh, NyQuil and you sleep through winter. I want to do that for summer. I that's what I need to do. Well, in fairness, it's not we just don't have summer trip plans. You know, Amanda really is excited about having barbecues and having people over to the house and like yeah. just keeping it local. I think. Well, actually, that sounds fun. But we're doing big stuff. We're going off to, to um. Yeah, you're to, going to Barcelona, right? Well, that's like the add-on thing. So first, we're going to Pacific Northwest yeah. to visit some colleges and go to the World Championships of Track and Field, which are in the United States for the first time ever. It's going to be super fun, I, I think. And then my daughter just qualified for the National Junior Olympics. That's um, awesome. Yeah, it's great, except that now that's like a four-day track meet in Sacramento. Uh, which Sack is, down. <laughs> Sack down, which is, which is awesome. Sorry yeah, for those I, of you. I think they call that the Venice of California. Or is <laughs> yes. it the Paris? <laughs> yes. No, I, I think it's the Modesto of California. Oh, wait. Hey, no, you know what hey, they call it? There's only one Modesto you know in what California. They call, it? they call it the Sacramento of California. <laughs> And that's enough. and everybody, that's understands, everybody it understands perfectly it. well. So yeah, we're doing that, which was sort of like we kind of were hoping that we'd be doing that. So that was built into our sort of summer schedule and plans. And then my brother, who I don't talk about enough on this show because I can make fun of my brother on this show because he's not a physician. I doubt he knows any emergency physicians aside from me and me <laughs> and you, of course. And so my brother's kind of like this free spirited guy and has a family despite his free spirit, but moves around a lot and. He decided a couple of weeks ago, maybe a month ago, to move to Barcelona, which he has now executed. Right. <laughs> he left for Barcelona. So you're going to Barcelona. So now, like, my wife is like, ah, oh, you know, I haven't been to Barcelona in years. If this is a great excuse to go to Barcelona. I'm like, there's lots of places I haven't been to in years. There's lots of places I've never been to in my whole life. And, you know, and maybe there's a reason for that. Like, it's far away and I don't really want to do it. But she's like, this is going to be great. We're going to go to Barcelona. 
And we're going to go, this block works for us because the kids' summer schedules and stuff like that. And so she's made the plans. And it was, it's perfect except for one itsy bitsy pro- actually eight itsy bitsy problems. <laughs> and they're all shifts. <laughs> and they're all shifts that I have during the window that she wants to go to Barcelona. Yeah, but this, see, now you're being a curmudgeon. You know, even eight I would sh- be excited about going to Barcelona. Well, then you can go in my stead. <laughs> you, want, you want a Freaky Friday situation? You stay home. But I have to stay I'll- at your house with the little kid. No, pass. If I can sleep through it, you I cannot. Would be- no, you have to take care of Ray and Ravi. And. And Toby. <laughs> Toby. Toby, I could take. He can just yeah. come over to my house. Toby would be happy. All the dogs can, can be happy together. The little kids, and I love your kids, as yeah. you know. Yes. Um, but I don't want to take care of them. No. Like at all. Like I, a week ago, I came over for a pool party day <laughs> with Rhea, and I made the mistake of teaching her because she's just learning how to swim. That's right. right? And so, we're, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm kind of like fun Uncle Mike, and I like to do, I'm kind of like, for those of you out there, I, I'm kind of like, physical. I like to do physical activity things. And, and so I'm like, I'm going to teach this girl, get her more comfortable in the water. And she's pretty comfortable, but I'm like, here, just hold on to my neck and we're going to go swimming. And I'll, and I'll swim around and I'll dive down to the bottom of the pool and you just hold on to my neck. And this is something I did with my kids all the time and swim across the pool with her under. And let's just say she did not tire of that. Yeah. <laughs> Big hit. She talks about it every single day. Well, and luckily, because we've gone in the pool a couple of times since then, and she's like, Daddy, do what Uncle Mike does. And I always just say, Daddy doesn't know how, and which she seems to think is true. So every day, every morning, Uncle Mike, when's Uncle Mike coming back over for the like pool? two hours, I'm like swimming underwater with a child yeah. joking me. You know, you got you to gotta think through some of your decisions a little more carefully I'm not, in I'm life. not very planful as far as that goes. But anyway, well, we got some good stuff coming yeah. forward. I did have one question for the listenership. How many of you went out there and listened to the last month's and watch an episode of Perfect Strangers. That's what I want to know. Yeah, <laughs> even if it wasn't the you know the Bibi Babka classic. Yeah, just any, just if you'd never heard of Perfect Strangers, been like, what what is a Balki Bartakamus? <laughs> How many of you did your homework? Because if you trust that- us, you know, I actually am curious. Maybe people who've never seen it before and then grow up in that era actually hate it. They're like, this is <laughs> terrible acting and yeah. not that funny, which is what makes it so good. <laughs> that's right. No, that's what we, we we actually said that in the intro. It was like it's probably like super racist and you know all sort of ethnophobic and stuff like that because it was like the 80s everything was like that and so they'll listen to it and be like you guys are awful human beings that you even enjoy that just trying to just trying to relive our childhood and share a little bit of joy with the listenership and speaking of sharing some joy we got some papers this month i got uh, yeah i have 10 joyful papers to share and you have another 10 joyful papers so that makes 20 joyful papers yeah and i've got i've got a lot of trials on my end i've got a few trials a few different trials on intubation um which you know don't see a lot of yeah. different aspects of intubation and what else what do you got I've got, I got all sorts of stuff and i have a whole mix of retrospective designs big trial designs i have stuff about cardiac troponins proning patients with covid oh, really that's a big paper that's, yeah. that's a that's a interesting trial. I have a, uh, a paper that's about trials. It's not a trial itself, but it's about pragmatic trials. So it's actually a methodsy paper. I know people are like, wait, let me note which one that yeah. is so Bookmark. I can skip it. Yeah. Bookmark. <laughs> Abstract number. <laughs> it's number 18. So you can skip it if you're not interested, but it's kind of a nice little review of pragmatic trials. There's a lot going on. And then we got the ultra summary with Jess and Jenny. And then big time, t- big news. Big news. We're going to talk nerdy. But Swami's on vacay. Yeah. Swami's on nerd hiatus. (laughs) Swami actually 
Yeah, the last nerd show, he actually caught malignant nerdemia. And so he's under intensive care to reduce his nerd levels. It was really, really high. It was radi- beeping. You got the nerd meter on him. It was going sadly, crazy. I, sadly, I heard it occurred after he watched Perfect Strangers. <laughs> so, <laughs> Sorry yeah. about that, Swami. So we can have, we have a special guest uh, host yeah. this month in the form of Chris Carpenter. Yep. And he is going to talk about something that we actually talked about, I think, last month, maybe yeah. two months ago. It was actually his paper and his group's paper called um, The Role of Indirect Evidence in Clinical Guidelines, which I touched on, and I thought it was great, a really interesting read. So I'm really looking forward yeah, to hearing Chris, what he yeah. has to say. If you, those of you who have not met Chris, he's a smart dude and a super good guy. So oh, yeah. we're thrilled I'm to really have him on the program. Uh, this one's good. This is a good one. September, here we go. Paper chase. Abstract number one. Effect of Fluid Bolus Administration on Cardiovascular Collapse Among Critically Ill Patients Undergoing Tracheal Intubation, a Randomized Clinical Trial. This is by Russell et al. from JAMA. Hypotension is common during the intubation of critically ill patients, occurring in an estimated 25 to 40% of patients in the ICU who are getting RSI. And current international guidelines and lots of expert recommendations that are written by different groups suggests that IV fluid should be given peri-intubation. One prior randomized control trial called PREPARE, which was conducted in about 300 patients, actually did not find an overall difference in cardiovascular collapse with the use of IV fluid, so kind of going in the face of some of these guidelines. But in a subgroup analysis, they did see a benefit, sort of a hypothesis-generating benefit, in patients who were getting bag valve mask ventilation or non-invasive ventilation. So some sort of positive pressure going in, maybe impacting, you know, venous return or something like that. So they've habituated to positive pressure, you take it away, something bad happens. Some, some hypotension occurs. That's sort of the physiologic theory. So this is great because they didn't say, hey, we should start doing this on, you know, patients who are getting bag valve mask. They said, let's do another trial. So basically that hypothesis generating finding, they now follow up with this trial called the PREPARE-2 trial, preventing cardiovascular collapse with administration of fluid resuscitation during induction and intubation. This is a multi-center, unblinded, pragmatic, randomized trial from 11 ICUs across the United States comparing a 500cc bolus of isotonic fluid versus no bolus peri-intubation. It really was started just before the intubation. No other aspects of the intubation were protocolized. They included adults getting RSI who were also receiving either bag valve mask ventilation or non-invasive ventilation and excluded patients who could not wait for randomization, so they were just too sick, crashing, needed to be tubed immediately, or who had a contraindication to receiving fluids, like I guess a bad CHF patient or something like that. The primary outcome was cardiovascular collapse, which was a composite outcome that they defined as either new or increased vasopressors between induction and two minutes after intubation, a systolic blood pressure of less than 65 between induction and two minutes after intubation, or cardiac arrest between induction and one hour after intubation, or death between induction and one hour after intubation. They enrolled just over a thousand patients with a median age of 62 years, 42% were women, and 20% were already on pressors. Agents used for sedation and paralysis 
were similar between the groups, mostly atomidate and rocuronium. That was the vast majority of what was used, as were initial vital signs and indication for intubation. So at baseline, the groups both looked pretty similar. Cardiovascular collapse occurred in 21% of the fluid group versus 18.2% of the no fluid group. Almost all of it, because it was a composite outcome that they had, right, was the need for new or increased dose of pressors and hypotension. Basically, there was no immediate cardiac arrest or death right after the intubation. Secondary outcomes, including death at 28 days, was also similar across the groups at just about 40%. So overall, this is a well-conducted trial with concealment of the group assignment right up to the moment of intubation to at least minimize selection bias of who would be included in the trial, but at the end of the day was a non-blinded trial and has the further limitation of using a composite outcome that has very different levels of severity in it, right? Did you need like your presser dose increased by one mic or did you die? Now, I know die didn't happen very much, but still, like that's a pretty wide-ranging composite outcome. Yeah, but usually non-blind, I mean, the evidence is that non-blinded trials favor interventions. And this one doesn't, I mean, the intervention didn't work. It was actually, I mean, you know, objectively, the numbers are a little bit better for the usual care group. So that's, you know, I think that's a little bit compelling. People should just know that, that non-blinding has a tendency to do something empirically. And in this case, it didn't support the intervention group. Yeah, that's that's a really good point. And then they also excluded 15% of intubations because of the urgency around the Mm -hmm. intubation. So functionally, they kind of excluded the sickest of the sick here, the patients who were crashing, the patients who really needed to be tubed. Those weren't in the trial. It's also worth noting that the median systolic blood pressure at induction was 128 millimeters of mercury. So we can't really extrapolate their findings to hypotensive patients, right? Like these patients were all normotensive to start with, or those being intubated for cardiac or respiratory arrest or other emergent conditions because those were excluded. Here, they basically are just saying there's all these guidelines that say pretty much for every intubation, you should be giving some fluids per the intubation, and these authors are saying, mm, not so fast. Yeah. I mean, I believe it. I, don't, I have never really believed that like 500 cc's of fluid is going to significantly impact cardiovascular collapse. Will it impact a little blood pressure measure, measurement on a margin on an occasional patient? I wouldn't be stunned if that were the case. But for all comers and for true cardiac collapse, boy, I, it just seems a little far-fetched to me. Yeah, I think this is not something we routinely practice in the ED. You know, although it is in all these guidelines, some people may be doing it. But if you're running codes in the ICU or something, you may be sort of exposed to this a little but bit more. But you don't more, think that most of the time in the ED, people are running fluids wide open during an intubation? They might not bolus it right ahead of time. Yeah, but. I think they're not doing this. Okay. You know, yeah, probably Understood. they are. Like for I mean, we're, we're intubating patients in the ED, they're, you know, they're sick. We don't have a lot of time to think. They yeah. may be fluid down at the beginning. These are patients that have been in the ICU for a couple of days. So it is a different population. But I think the message here, is really, really good, and I expect guidelines to change. Editor's commentary. Contradictory to previous research and several professional society guidelines on the topic, the authors of this multi-center randomized trial found no benefit from a pre-slash-peri-intubation 500cc fluid bolus on the incidence of cardiovascular collapse during urgent intubations in ICU patients receiving bag valve mask or non-invasive ventilation during the procedure. Importantly, 
although not mentioned in the title, abstract, or discussion section of the paper, we can't apply their findings to hypotensive or crashing patients as these were not included in their study. Abstract number two, rapid exclusion of acute myocardial injury and infarction with a single high-sensitivity cardiac troponin T in the emergency department, a multi-center United States evaluation. This is by Sandoval et al., and it's in circulation, a very important journal. So high-sensitivity troponins are or are coming to an ER near you. This is actually particularly true if you live near LACUSC, where we're actually about to start. Did you know that? We're about to start using high-sensitivity troponins finally. So we've covered quite a few studies over the years explaining how to interpret the findings of these high-sensitivity troponins. And the truth is that I'm still a little fuzzy on it myself because we don't use it. We still use you know, a conventional troponin. Overall, the chief problem is that many people have high-sensitivity troponin levels above the detection limit, but this does not necessarily mean the patient's suffering from AMI. So most of the time, people have adopted a 0-3 or a 0-1-hour algorithm which is applied in which the baseline and the rate of rise over that one hour are assessed and we come up with some determination about whether we think there was myocardial injury or infarction. This study asks a little bit different question. It's what if the first value is less than six nanograms per liter? And this is very technical, but in Europe, the manufacturers are allowed to report a negative troponin is less than five nanograms per liter. That's kind of interesting. In that cohort of people, it has been demonstrated that MI is effectively ruled out with greater than 99% fidelity if they have that first negative troponin. But in the United States, the FDA does not allow us to report down to that level. And we're only allowed to report down to six nanograms per liter. Has something to do with the the reliability of that finding gets a little bit uh, unstable at that level. Our FDA didn't like that. So we report down to six nanograms per liter, and no one's ever assessed whether or not that too reliably rules out MI. So could we sort of take the approach that they are saying works in Europe and apply it here in the United States because we just report it out different? That's right, because our detection limit is 20% higher. Exactly. So this study looks at the test characteristics of a single high-sensitivity troponin that is totally negative in the United States, so less than six nanograms per liter. The authors use this registry called the CV-MART biomarker cohort, and it's a prospectively collected registry from all adult patients who received a high-sensitivity troponin at one of the Mayo Clinic system EDs, and that's, you know, the system includes hospitals in Minnesota, Florida, and Arizona. These patients had to not be in cardiac arrest, and otherwise not have ST segment elevation on their ECG. Because that's if you have that, it doesn't matter what your high sensitive troponin is. A small number of subjects, so they they took that this registry is all of the people who had a high sensitivity troponin. A small number of them had an adjudication of whether or not they ultimately had an MI. Okay. And this was done for a parallel research study with strong research methods. This registry is just everybody who had a high-sensitivity troponin with sort of pragmatic approach to data collection. Again, there were two key study questions. First, how many of these patients with an initial negative troponin went on to have an elevated second troponin in that sort of, you know, danger zone level? And two, 
how many of these patients with an initial negative troponin and a non-ischemic ECG went on to have an MI? Okay, so if you had the negative and a non-ischemic ECG, how many of them had an MI? So basically what happened is they had 85,000 people who were included in the troponin registry. The mean age was 63. Men and women were evenly split. Only 29% had a baseline or an initial troponin of less than six nanograms per liter, but still it's a third of them. A third of them had a totally negative troponin. Of those, 146 of them, so it's about 25,000 people, of the 25,000 that had an, an initial negative troponin, 146 of them had a rise in their second troponin to above that 99th percentile, which could qualify as an acute MI. So that's a 1.2%, which means that the negative predictive value is 98.8%. Of that 24,000 people with an initial negative troponin, and again, 1.2% of them had a rise, which could have qualified as an MI, so that's not super great, right, that they could miss as many as 1%. But of that, only 0.2 actually had a diagnosis of MI made. In the validated cohort, that's the cohort that had an adjudicated by research methods, did this person have an MI or not? There were 2,000 people, 624, so just about a third, similar to the other cohort, had a negative initial troponin. And of that group, 1.2% were adjudicated to have an MI. So that's a miss rate of just about 1%, which you know, is probably marginal in terms of whether that's an acceptable miss rate or not. On the other hand, if you restrict it to just the people who had a negative troponin and a non-ischemic initial EKG or ECG, the miss rate was zero. Okay. And I think that that's sort of the point that they kind of drive home in this whole thing is that if they're not ischemic and the initial one is negative, walk away. One note Women were twice as likely to have negative initial troponins than men. So when you're dealing with men, there's a high probability that they're going to have an initial positive troponin. You're going to have to do that second thing. I think this data is actually kind of compelling. You know, the negative predictive value is very, very high. When you restrict it to just the people who have a negative trope and a negative ECG, then, you know, the, it apparently is 100% sensitive. And that's, that's really, really, really good. There's a bunch of things in this paper that we don't know that you know might give us a little bit of pause. Like we don't know how long people were having chest pain, for example. And generally, these algorithms with high sensitive troponin or any you know anything that uses high any troponin for that matter to rule out MI sort of says you know the chest pain should be ongoing or have started at least three hours ago. So they don't have any. We don't have any way through this data analysis to understand how many of these patients and if any of the misses were those people that presented with 25 minutes or 30 minutes of chest pain. Because in those cases, I think it would be a foolish emergency physician who's like, oh, you've had chest pain for 20 minutes, you have a single tr negative troponin, I'm discharging you. And those patients were probably going to be ordering serial tropes anywhere, a delta trope, if you will, anyway. But if someone's had it for six hours, 12 hours a day, and they have a negative trope and a negative EKG, I think this is reassuring that it tells us that what's been going on in Europe with a negative cut point of five can probably be applied to the United States with a negative cut point of six. You look like you want to say something there, but Yeah, well, I'm just sort of thinking about it, because, I mean, even with the conventional trope, if it's going on for a day, yeah. constant, and, you know, it's negative, we're obviously going to be done with a single trope. I think most people are. So I'm just trying to think, when this gets rolled out, and probably a lot of places are in a peri kind of rollout mm -hmm. phase, 
you know, do you think, I know you said the data was compelling. Is it strong enough to say like normal EKG, single negative high sensitivity trope, you're done? My gut feeling is no. I, my, my gut feeling honestly is yes, provided that the chest pain has been going on for at least a few hours. Okay, fair enough. enough. That's where I would be. Now, the practical side of this, which is what, you know, the listeners who have experience using this will probably have to inform us about is that, you know, what is a, a zero in one hour trope? How do you actually execute that? I mean, the result won't be known until probably the one hour mark. So do you, I mean, you know, or after the one hour mark. So do you draw them both and that, you know, at zero mark zero, and then at one hour, wait for the zero mark to come back and then send the second one? Is that, is that how you actually do it? Because or do you just say, I'm going to send it at zero in one hour? You know, you, do you, you see my point here is it's a, it's a little funky, right? If you wait for the troponin to come back negative, then you're probably an hour and a half into the case and you could have just already sent the second trope. But maybe the, practically what people do is hold on to that second tube for a little while. Editor's commentary. This article tends to confirm that a single high sensitivity troponin Below 6 nanograms per liter, which is the limit that is reported in the United States, is sufficient to rule out MI with 99% sensitivity. Repeat high-sensitivity troponins will still be necessary for patients having intermediate values, and most patients in general will actually have an intermediate value. Clinical practice. Abstract number three. Atomidate versus ketamine for emergency endotracheal intubation, a randomized clinical trial. This is by Matchett et al. from Intensive Care Medicine. Ketamine and atomidate are both acceptable choices for induction during most RSI situations, although many physicians out there have very strong opinions on the topic about which one is actually better than the other, citing concerns about hypotension and adrenal suppression among other concerns they may have with one agent or the other. But data on the topic is pretty mixed, with the Ketased trial, which is now starting to get a little bit on the old side of trials, showing essentially no hemodynamic differences between the two, but a difference in laboratory-measured adrenal insufficiency. It's been tough to show a clinical adrenal insufficiency impact, while near data suggested that ketamine was associated with more hypotension episodes, but this is observational data, subject to selection bias. The authors of this trial state that they did some QI work looking at their own internal data, which they say in the paper is unpublished QI work, from their airway team, right? And that sounds kind of like a code blue team, something like that, which is run by anesthesiologists there, which seemed to show that patients who got atomidate in these code blue situations did worse than those who got other agents at day seven which was their QI metric, which is why they were looking at that day seven mark. So basically, they designed the EVK trial, the Atomidate versus Ketamine trial, with a primary outcome of survival at day seven. This is a prospective, randomized, non-blinded trial from a single center in Dallas where patients being cared for by the anesthesiology-led airway team were randomized to receive either Atomidate 0.2 to 0.3 mg per kg IV or ketamine 1 to 2 mg per kg IV as part of their RSI for their emergent airways. And over a four-year period, they randomized 801 patients, which actually seems like a lot. Yeah, it does. 
but they excluded over 1,100 with 700 of those, about 700, due to the fact that the physician doing the intubation was like, "Mm, I don't want to risk giving them something else. They had a preference for a specific agent for that specific case. Baseline characteristics were similar with a mean age of 55 years, just over half were female, and about a third of the patients being intubated were intubated for septics or septic shock. They observed a statistically significant difference in survival at seven days. Statistically significant. 77.3 in the automidate group versus 85.1 in the ketamine group. But this difference vanished at 28 days, 64% versus 66%, and there was no difference in any of the other outcomes they looked at, including ICU length of stay, vasopressor use or duration, duration of mechanical ventilation. In fact, they looked at dozens of outcomes. They looked at all kinds of things in this randomized trial in some exploratory analyses when most of them actually turned out to be pretty similar. Almost all, including adrenal insufficiency, clinical adrenal insufficiency, and successful intubation on various metrics, first pass, all kinds of stuff, saying like from a technical perspective, looked like they both generated similar intubating conditions. A few that were notably different were the need for push-dose pressors post-induction, which occurred in 18% of the automidate group versus 26% of the ketamine group, and post-induction CPR, which occurred in 3.8% of the automidate group versus 5.1% of the ketamine group, and post-induction cardiovascular collapse, which occurred in 17.4% of the automidate group versus 25.1% of the ketamine group. But I want to just, let me just back up and make sure I heard your numbers right, because it sounds like what you're saying there is that the things that sound like they would portend a bad outcome, like needing cardiovascular collapse, all that kind of stuff, favors automidate, and yet at day seven, somehow more people from in the automidate group were dead compared to the ketamine group. Is that right? That's exactly right. Okay. So I heard that correct. Yeah, no, I mean, because using day seven survival as an outcome is weird. Yeah. It's just sort of a weird thing to do. We usually look at 28 day survival and stuff like that. But they they say why they did it. They're like, we kind of looked in advance and this is where we saw a difference. So we're going to look at that. But in sort of more established things that other groups are looking at, they actually didn't see any differences between the two. They looked pretty similar. So my gut feeling is, that this is another one of those papers that's probably going to strengthen the position that you held when you heard this this segment of this podcast. Either you believe that the seven-day survival difference is pure artifact, Mm -hmm. right? And they have the survival curves, and they kind of split a little, and they seem to max out at day seven and then come right back together again. Mm -hmm. So you think that's artifact, or you believe, hey, there's a signal here that the ketamine is better in terms of survival, and this study is simply underpowered to detect that signal, to see if there's a real difference. Now, there's a lot of limitations in this study, including the single-center nature of the trial, the lack of clinical data about the patients before they had a crash airway. They just don't really provide any for some reason. The fact that most of these were done on the ward, right? It wasn't like the primary team who knew the patient who was taking care of them did the intubation. It was by a code blue anesthesiology team the use of this non-conventional seven-day survival as a primary outcome, 
And for me, what's important is the lack of reporting of the neurologically intact survival at any point. Mm -hmm. They don't say that at all. This is just a pure mortality and the clear presence of selection bias in terms of who came into this thing because two-thirds of the eligible patients were excluded at the discretion of the airway team. So, you know, I think this is one of those that's going to make most people go, I'm just not sure what to I do mean, with this data. How could ketamine, how could a single dose of ketamine versus atomidate have a treatment effect that results in a mortality difference of seven or 8%? Like nothing has that. There's like nothing, blood transfusions don't have that big of a treatment effect on, in trauma patients. You know what I mean? So it's just, that that is just, that's yeah, just too Particularly big. when, as you already mentioned, the things that should sort of be the signs that something right. bad is going to happen, like CPR and push right, dose right. pressors and stuff, actually all favor to tomidate. So I really do see this as, you know, it just kind of depends how deep you want to dive yeah. into the data to come up with something. But probably at the end of the day, although the abstract and the paper is written very positively towards the use of ketamine, you know, I was like, oh, intensive care medicine. I wonder what the impact factor of this journal is. Go Any on. Any idea? No. It's 17. Yeah, so it's a bit. It's a, it's a big, big journal, yeah. you know. Well, and I think if the the data were more consistent, it probably would have wound up in an even bigger journal. But like the inconsistency probably had people, reviewers at you know JAMA and whatnot, going, mm, I don't know what to make. You know, it's just I I just can't make sense of it. It's important to publish. I don't, you know, and I'm not saying. As you said, it's a, considering the patient population. It's pretty incredible to do this kind of work. Yeah, randomized honestly. 800 patients, crashing patients. Yeah, not not like just that's right. These are like. The, you know, you did your first paper and it was like, well, we excluded all the crashing ones. Yeah, they put them you know, in. Yeah, that's all they did. So, you know, it's pretty it's pretty impressive data and it might drive thinking for a while because it'll probably be a little bit before we have another crashing airway thing. But yeah, it's, it's, just, it's just hard to wrap your head around this one. But I think for me, this is one of those like, you know, every, sometimes when I'm going through my papers in the month, I come across one or two where I'm like, wow, I think EMA can really have some value to like some real value because this one is just, I think their conclusions are way too strong. I think you really need to understand the details of this paper to come to your own conclusion about the findings. Edit this commentary. The authors of this paper conduct a randomized trial of patients being intubated by an anesthesiology-led airway team and report that ketamine use resulted in an increased survival compared with atomidate at day 7, but there was no difference at day 28. They don't report on survival with good neurologic outcome, and there are many flaws that temper my enthusiasm for the study, including clear selection bias, a non-blinded design, and de-emphasis of the potential negative hemodynamic effects of ketamine in the exploratory part of the analyses. The authors should get kudos for conducting the study and enrolling 800 patients, and my gut feeling is that you will probably interpret their findings in different ways to strengthen your existing opinion. But in no way is this study strong enough to warrant a real practice change. Abstract number four, assessment of awake prone positioning in hospitalized adults with COVID-19, a non-randomized controlled trial by Kian et al. in JAMA Internal Medicine. So prone positioning has been around for a long time for you know people with severe respiratory issues, particularly mechanically ventilated ones, but it received renewed interest during the COVID pandemic. Previous research during the COVID pandemic on COVID patients has shown pretty conclusively 
that flipping patients onto their stomachs results in transient improvement in oxygen saturations. And I must admit, I loved this approach with people who were starting to exhaust more non-invasive supplemental oxygen strategies in the ED. I mean, I must have done this on I'm 100 patients in the, you know, during the, the height of the sort of delta wave phase of the pandemic. It would get you away from having to intubate that patient in the ED, buy you a few hours, they'd go up to the ICU. Of course, I always heard, uh, we ended up intubating that guy anyway. But I, you know, it got me through a few hours. The authors concede, yeah, it improves oxygen levels, but it doesn't really impact clinical outcomes, a question that I had honestly just not asked that much of myself during the pandemic. So this is a really interesting, pragmatic, non-randomized trial design. They did is for patients that were admitted with respiratory failure, and they defined that very broadly. It just meant that they had a need for supplemental oxygen. So these are admitted patients who needed supplemental oxygen. The authors either instructed the staff and the patients to have the, the patients routinely self-prone or not, right, based on their medical record number. So it wasn't randomized. It was based on their medical record number with even patients getting self-proning and odd patients getting usual care. Eventually, they consented the patients for the acquisition of their data, but they didn't consent them to one strategy or the other. That was just, we re- this is our recommendation. You know, We recommend that this happens for these patients and not happen for these patients. So this occurred, the study took place from May 2020 through December 2020, so very early in the COVID pandemic. And as I thought about like why you would do this sort of strange design, and they, they say they did it to avoid delays in enrollment. And I remember as, as researchers, we know, basically they kicked everybody out of the hospital that wasn't absolutely necessary for clinical care. I mean, pretty much every hospital in America did that. And so from May to December 2020, they probably kicked out all the research staff, is my guess, or at least for most of the time and day. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's what we did. And we yep. have some research assistants on staff with us in our department at USC, and they basically did not come in during the COVID pandemic. That's, right. Uh, and know, we certainly wanted to minimize especially their exposure. Early, yeah. Especially early when we knew so little about it. Right. So that I mean, makes this is pre-vaccination. It's actually this is pretty all... cool that they thought of this way to do it. To deal with- and to do deal like with... sort of a, it feels like a randomized trial. Right. And then they could go in later and consent them under full PPE yep. and all this kind of stuff and do it maybe via phone or whatever they did. I don't know. I don't know exactly the mechanisms for how they consented those people. So that's how they did the trial. The primary outcome was respiratory status of the patient at day five after admission. And this was collected on an ordinal scale. So that ranged from the patient was discharged to they were on room air to they were on nasal cannula to they were on high flow nasal cannula to they were on non-invasive to they were mechanically ventilated and finally dead. So that was the ordinal scale that this information was, oh, they also had ECMO on there slightly before it did. The statistical analysis is actually pretty complex because they use a Bayesian ordinal model as opposed to sort of like the more frequentist statistics we're used to, but I don't think it has too much impact in our interpretation of the findings. Ultimately, they had 501 patients with a mean age of 61 that were included, 258 in the prone group. 243 in the usual care group. The groups actually seem pretty balanced at baseline between age and oxygen status, despite not being truly randomized. So even though they use this sort of awkward strategy to to put people into different groups, it looked like it more or less randomized people. For what it's worth, 
66% of the people were receiving nasal cannula oxygen at the time of admission and only 30% receiving high-flow nasal cannula. So these aren't like the sickest of the sick people, at least upon their initial presentation when they were assigned to their various different treatment strategies. This is very important because, again, non-randomized. They queried the medical record and nurse's notes to see how often patients in each group were actually in the prone position because this is happening in this hospital and it's quite possible the nurses and the patients just start proning themselves or whatever. They're like, well, I'm doing it in patient A. Why don't I do it in this other guy over here? It seems to be working. And what they found was that the people assigned to proning were prone for a little over four hours a day on average. And the people assigned to no proning were prone zero hours a day. So it looks like there was some treatment fidelity to the protocol. Bottom line results. After adjusting for any baseline differences, the prone group had higher odds of a worse outcome on the ordinal scale than the usual care group, an odds ratio of 1.63, meaning that they just had, they were shifted on that scale towards the worst outcomes. This translates to a 99.8 posterior probability of worse outcomes. That's the whole Bayesian thing. They don't give you a p-value. They tell you what's the probability that this means that one was worse than the other. 99.8% that it was worse. By day 28, most of the effect size had gone away. The chance of requiring mechanical ventilation, so getting to frequentist statistics, stuff that I think you can wrap your head around a little bit more, the chance of requiring mechanical ventilation was 12% in each group, and mortality at 28 days was 23% in the usual care group, 21% in the prone group. So actually, kind of had flipped a little bit, but statistically, They don't report that, but it looks pretty insignificantly different. They examined a variety of subgroups, and they basically report there's no heterogeneity at all. It didn't matter if the patients were on higher oxygen, lower oxygen, all that kind of stuff. It didn't matter. The results were generally consistent. So what does it all mean? But did they, just a question, this is all very interesting and kind of, I think, you know, flies in the face a little bit of what we all thought during the COVID pandemic. So oxygen levels, they sort of slice and dice that a little bit. Did they look at like chest x-ray findings or something? Like the people who had worse looking viral pneumonia, you know, they did, did they not, do better or worse? I, you know, to be honest, I don't know. I don't know. And the reason I don't know is when they talked about the subgroups that they looked at, they didn't display them in a table. They just said, we looked at a variety of subgroups and we tested them for any heterogeneity. We didn't see any. Hmm. So each one is not specific. Sometimes you see one of those tables where they yeah. have the little dot on favoring one. Exactly. Favor. That's they don't, what they I was don't, hoping. They don't do that in this paper. Mm. That's, not, that's not presented. So, you know, what does it all mean? For me, this means that routine awake proning, maybe it makes your oxygen sat better initially, but that certainly doesn't seem to translate to improved outcomes, you know, after several days and certainly not after 28 days. Does it really make things worse? You know, that I suspect not. And I can't exactly explain their things, but if you look at their survival curves and you look at some of the data that they present, the effect of this worsening effect of the proning goes away after, by 14 days, it's gone, right? It's, It's the ordinal scales are back down to even. By 28 days, they're even. The risk of mechanical ventilation is the same. The mortality is the same. So I don't think that it really makes things significantly worse. And if it does, it's probably just by a day or so, which is probably not all that clinically meaningful. So I wouldn't necessarily say that you're killing people. I mean, there's no evidence that you're killing people by proning them. But the truth is there's no evidence that you're helping them in any kind of clinically meaningful way. So 
you know, if you're in a jam and you don't want to intubate somebody right then because you have to prep or something like that, it seems like, you know, maybe proning them for a little bit might buy you a little time, but it doesn't actually improve the outcomes. Edit this commentary. Awake proning for patients with mild to moderate respiratory failure due to COVID-19 early in the pandemic was not associated with improved clinical outcomes. The finding that proned positioning actually was associated with worse outcomes should be taken with a grain of salt, as the outcomes that truly matter, need for mechanical ventilation or death, were actually similar between the groups. Abstract number five. Analgesic and anxiolytic effects of virtual reality during minor procedures in an ED, a randomized controlled study, this by Basso et al. from the illustrious Annals of Emergency Medicine. Performing minor procedures in the ED is a near-daily occurrence, probably occurs once a shift at least in our clinical practice, and while significant complications are very rare, the presence of pain and anxiety during the procedure or pre-procedure are high. Distraction is a commonly used tool to minimize pain and anxiety, and the mechanism effect is likely multimodal, including a redirection of your attention, of the patient's attention, and on sort of a physiologic level, some kind of competition for cerebral areas associated with sensory and pain processing. It's like you're doing something else, your brain can't, you know, chew gum and rub your belly at the same time. Your brain definitely can't do that. Yeah, yours definitely. (laughs) Yeah, it can barely chew gum. Yeah. One could theorize that the distraction methods that take up a greater cognitive load might show greater efficacy. Right. With right. sort of when you think about it, the Chew most gum and perform, you know, open heart surgery, open heart surgery, which I don't think is recommended, generally no. speaking. The most immersive of all would be a 3D virtual reality headset, but would really need to have a significant edge over a simpler technique because it's expensive, although they're coming down in price now, it's still a little bit more expensive. They're fragile. They yeah. break a lot. And they're very hard to clean in between patients to really sanitize, sterilize, etc. So here, the authors compare distraction via a 3D environment via a VR headset to the same environment generated on a 2D screen on pain and anxiety among adults in the ED getting a minor procedure. And a lot of these are done in kids, a lot of the studies that I have but read I like and we've it. covered. I feel like it's not fair. They're always like, oh, ouchless ER, all that kind of stuff. But only Unless you're over children. 18. Yeah, and then it's like, you know what, <laughs> sucker? <laughs> so the environment that they made was a Zen garden with breathing suggestions, like in through the nose, out, something like that, and relaxing music, which then was projected either in a VR headset, like you felt like you were in the garden, or you were watching the garden on a laptop screen for five minutes before the procedure, for the entire duration of the procedure, and then five minutes after the procedure. And then they present data on 117 patients. Average age, about 44 years old, 64% men, and about 70% of the procedures were wound exploration or suturing. And about 20% of the procedures were for fracture reduction or casting. Okay, so I get it now. Because I'm thinking Zen Garden. That's when I think of I. My son has 3D headset, and a couple of years ago we got that, and I used it. It's cool, right? But I'm we're playing games in it. Yeah, and move the, your arms, yeah, and like hands, playing, and stuff. And I'm yeah. like that. I feel like would distract completely. But yeah, it would be difficult to sew up a lack if somebody's like thus, fighting zombies yeah. on a, in a 3D environment. That's that's the Zen Garden. Yeah. You just sit, which 
doesn't seem and like it would be as effective. Or I could see that it not being, you know, potentially. I, I agree. Doesn't yeah. seem like it's really making use of that VR ability. Right. Exactly. So the median difference in procedural pain and anxiety scores were not different between the groups, but in truth, they weren't that high to start with. The 2D pain was 28 pre, 50 during, and 12 post, and the 3D group, the pain was 29 pre, 47 during, and 19 post. Surprisingly, they looked at a lot of stuff here. The incidence of cyber sickness, which they measure on some scale, was also the same between the groups and was pretty high in both groups. 53% of the 2D group and 49% of the 3D group. I don't know. I can't that. explain I don't even know that. What that is so. And the use of any type of analgesics in the cohort was very low, with about 75% of the 2D group and 70% of the 3D group getting no pre-procedural analgesics at all. So these must have been pretty minor, Some pretty lax, minor yeah, things minor going lax. on. This study is interesting in that it was conducted in adults. Well, like I said before, most of the previous data on this topic, the Ouchless EDs, thought about in children. And overall, it was a negative study, but I think Mike already alluded to it a little bit, that one method might be superior to the other if the VR was more VR-y in its nature. Right? I know there's like sort of the findings you have to move, but there's also like we've seen somewhere it's like you're sitting on a train in yeah. a carnival or something like that. And it, they, didn't, they really tried to do same-same, and I'm just not sure that took advantage of the VR enough. And the other thing I'm curious about is if the patients had a higher level of pain or anxiety at the onset, would we then maybe have seen the VR get some more bang for its buck here? But here, look like... Well, I mean, that's part of the reason maybe people do do this in children, right? Because they're flipping out over a small laceration. If you're an adult and you have a small lack on your arm, you're like... You know, I've been through this before. I know it's not that big of a deal. I'm not that worried about it. I can manage this. It's not going to freak me out or anything like that. So that does, when you start with that population, your ability to detect a treatment effect is going to be way lower. So Yeah, I agree. Editor's commentary. In this randomized trial of adults in the ED getting minor procedures, mostly in the form of wound exploration suturing or fracture reduction casting, the authors did not observe a difference in anxiety or pain scores between 2D screen-based or 3D VR-based passive relaxing environment distraction techniques. These findings may have been different if more active environments had been used or if the patients had higher baseline pain and anxiety, but at the end of the day, we don't need to go run out and buy VR headsets for all of our patients just yet. Abstract number six, comparison of three intraosseous access devices for resuscitation of term neonates, a randomized simulation study by Keller et al. And this is in the Archives of Disease in Childhood, Fetal and Neonatal Edition. Resuscitating a neonate is about as challenging as it can get. Emotions are big and the bodies are small, like really, really small, making everything very, very difficult. For vascular access, which is typically to deliver epinephrine, umbilical vein cannulation is the preferred method. But this has a couple of challenges. The first challenge is that none of us have actually ever done this. And I know there's some pediatricians and pediatric emergency physicians out there that are going, no, we do this all the time. Reality check, none of us have done this. 
The second is that umbilical cords shrivel up and fall off very early, so this is probably not viable beyond you know several days after birth. Some recent studies have suggested that intraosseous placement is a good alternative to umbilical catheter placement, particularly for people who really don't have the experience with the umbilical catheter, but do have experience with intraosseous placement, like most emergency physicians. This study looked at which device is best when attempting an intraosseous. The authors compared the easy IO drill with a traditional jam sheety needle, which is basically a bone marrow needle you kind of just drive in there, with a newer product called the NIO Infant. I can't remember what the NIO part stands for, but it honestly is like a jam sheety needle with like a stabilizing mechanism on the end of it. Because the jam sheety, one of its problems is once you put that thing in there, it can wobble around a little bit. The study was not sponsored by a manufacturer of any of the products. Apparently, this is one of the more interesting things I found in this paper. The average 40-week neonate has a tibia that's 7 centimeters long with 6 millimeters in diameter, which is exactly the same size as a Cornish game hen tibia. So that's the model that they used, Cornish game hen tibias. I just thought that was kind of interesting. They randomized 90 pediatric residents or pediatricians to one of the three methods, the EZIO, this NIO infant thing, or jam sheeting needle. And they had them each stick it into this Cornish game hen tibia. And what they did is they cut the bottom of the tibia off so that when they infused fluids through it, if it came out the bottom, they thought that was good. If on the other hand, it either couldn't infuse fluids or infused out the back of the model, then that was bad. It was improperly placed. They gave them one attempt to do it, and then they measured whether or not they were successful. Success was the outcome. The only other outcome that they looked at was the ease of use. And so they asked each of the providers how easy was it to use you know, one of these three devices. Okay. One weird thing about this is the model itself, they actually did something. I, I don't really understand why. They have some rationalization for it, but they took all the meat off the bone. Oh, so it was just the bone. It was just the bone. and See, they That's they, a shame. Yeah, and they said, you know, oh, we did that because we really wanted to test, like, you know, just sort of just the, the performance of, of the, the needle and not, you know. Because you could miss the bone completely if exactly. there's, like, a leg around it. Right, exactly. Or, you know, push too hard or whatever. So in that sense, this is really, like, as good as it gets, kind of, in a certain sense, right? Or, you know, whatever. It's just a little different. I, I, don't, I don't love that strategy, but that's what they did. Anyway, what were the results? The subjects all reported that the EZIO was great. 100% of them said five out of five, love it, no problems. And with the other ones, it was more like four out of five. However, 56% of the time that the EZIO was used in this model where you're looking right at the bone, they went right through the bone, both sides. And so 56% of the time, the placement was, in, was inappropriate and the fluid went out, you know, out the back. That was true only 25% of the time with the other two methods. So the jam sheety and this, this other thing, which like I said, is like kind of a jam sheety with a stabilizing needle on it. They were able to keep that needle within the, the marrow better. Now, at your hospital, you're probably going to have to use whatever you have, right? And you, chances are, if you're in an emergency department, it's an easy IO. So I'm not sure that you have a lot of options to choose the different ones. But I think we should all be aware that this EZIO drill has this tendency, and I'm not, you know, I don't think this is super surprising, 
to go too deep. Because after all, it's a drill, right? You start, you drill through that cortex and all of a sudden it just goes zoop, like that. Whereas the Jamshidi or this other thing, I think you get sort of more tactile feedback and you have a better ability to stop it when you go through, you know, right through the cortex. Now, whether this has implications beyond the neonatal period, I don't know, like a little baby, like a, a, a toddler or something like that. Does the EZIO routinely go through that one as well? Don't know. Certainly in adults, I'm not worried about that as much. You know, the needle is not long enough to go through both. But this is something to keep in mind if you're in, ever in this unenviable position where you have to resuscitate a, a, you know, a neonate or you know, some, a baby that's just a couple of days old, that there will be this tendency to go through. So be really, really careful not to do that. Edit this commentary. The commonly used EZIO drill device most often resulted in passing through both cortical surfaces in a neonatal model. Providers should be aware of this tendency in the unenviable situation of having to resuscitate a neonate. Abstract number seven, a retrospective evaluation of phenobarb versus benzodiazepines for the treatment of alcohol withdrawal in a regional Canadian emergency department. This is by Pistor et al. from the journal Alcohol. So alcohol withdrawal is caused by the abrupt cessation of alcohol use and manifests with symptoms ranging from mild agitation to tremor to seizures, all the way to hallucinations and death. Benzodiazepines have been the mainstay of ED treatment for many, many years, but recently phenobarb has gained in popularity with the potential advantages of a longer half-life, allowing for some self-tapering and a rapid onset of action on the GABA receptors. Studies comparing the two are very limited and have yielded mixed results, probably because most of them are observational studies that have substantial confounding in them. Here, the authors from Canada conduct a retrospective study assessing the value of phenobarb as monotherapy for alcohol withdrawal in the emergency department compared with benzos. And I think this is really cool. They talk about their hospital. Their hospital is called Battleford Union Hospital in Saskatchewan. This is, just to get a sense of it, right? this is a big study published. This is an 11-bed ED that has 27,000 annual visits. I just think that's cool that they did a study, got it published. In 2019, two of the authors of this paper basically put together two, and they said they have some extra knowledge of like pox or, you know, some biochemical things, who put together two different treatment pathways, one for monotherapeutic diazepam and one for monotherapeutic phenobarb outlining dosing and frequency for symptomatic and maintenance periods for alcohol withdrawal treatment. So they didn't say, hey, we're going to use one or the other or randomize or something. They just said, hey, if you, here's the best practice for one. Here's the best practice for the other. Go ahead. Go ahead and see what happens. And then they conduct a retrospective review of patients treated for alcohol withdrawal between 2019 and 2021. And they have a total of 185 cases among 83 patients who were treated for alcohol withdrawal in the study period. Of the 13 physicians who treated patients, a small ED, they yeah. can kind of put this thing out on an individual level. Eight used both pathways, so kind of went one day one, one day another. Five used exclusively one or the other. Overall, about a third of the cases were managed with phenobarb monotherapy. The groups were similar at baseline in age and comorbidities, but more patients with moderate or severe alcohol withdrawal 
as measured by the Clinical Institute Withdrawal Assessment for Alcohol score were treated with phenobarb. So the sicker ones, they leaned a little sick in the phenobarb group. Their two main outcomes of interest were ED length of stay, which was the same across both groups, 4.4 hours, and hospitalization rate, which was much lower in the phenobarb group, 9.4% versus 17.1%. And these were the patients who skewed a little bit sicker to begin with. They used a logistic regression to control for potential confounders, and after adjustment, they found that phenobarb-treated presentations were 71.3% less likely to be admitted. Yeah. 100 patients, logistic regression could be a problem. <laughs> that probably is a problem. But again, they, they went through the steps, I'm, right? This is not like the ivory tower, big academic yeah. institution. I think they did a really nice job yeah. with what they had. There were 10 patients who had deviations in the suggested treatment pathway, either because they got an extra dose of something or a different agent altogether, like they got Ativan or something, or they crossed over. And in a sensitivity analysis where they removed those 10 patients, they said, let's just take those 10 out, look at the people who got the monotherapy that they were supposed to, the findings were largely unchanged. So yeah, there's some issues, no doubt. We can't ignore those with like a small number of patients and some issues with running a regression on that. But overall, this is an excellent example of a QI project, a straight QI project of making these two things turned research project that adds something to a relatively small existing body of literature on a topic that we encounter very frequently in the practice of emergency medicine. It's not a trial. There's just no way to know if there's some unmeasured variable might account for all of their absurd well, like differences. The, like the person who uses phenobarbital is one of those three people who uses, you know, uses it all the time and he and, accounts and, for and he, he or she, never he or she never admits anybody. Like, right. Or they're just really excellent doctors at other things as well. You know, yeah, they we just don't through. know. And there's also a pretty small N, right? The number of admissions is only twenty six. We're talking about twenty six admissions here. So I think that these things all put together really limits the strength of any conclusion that you might be able to draw. You definitely can't say Hey, no doubt about yeah. it. Phenobarb's the preferred choice here. For but me, the conclusion is getting very close to we need a trial. We've, we're starting to get all these little nuggets. We keep seeing it over and over again. I think Small that's studies. right. And anecdotally, I mean, people, we use a lot more phenobarb yeah. at USC recently than I have, you know, five years ago. And I really like it. I think it's very good. I think they could have done, if I was to have one suggestion to these authors, if they're listening, would have been interesting to see sort of the rate of phenobarb use maybe over time mm -hmm. or before the protocol was initiated. Like, you know, maybe people started using like, oh, this is great, actually. And yeah. then there was a big uptick or something. I would have liked to see something like that. But I, yeah. I hear your point. But I mean, I, you know, it's 100 people. You know, you start doing all this trend lines over time, this, that, the other thing. You end up starting seeing weird stuff that you, you know, that I think you, you would be you prone to oversimplify. You could have been a pre and post at least three years before, three no, years I, after. I, I don't disagree with that. I'm just like, you know, at some point that is essentially slicing the data thin again and you start seeing things and then, and then you say, oh, well, you should, you, you know, whatever, X, Y, or Z. And really, this is a small trial with a little signal. I agree. I think I want to be really clear about this, that the authors don't come out strong saying mm -hmm. like, hey, you know, I think they really stated their conclusions well, saying this is good fodder for a trial. I'm just saying if it's going to be fodder, then give us a little more fodder. I'm very comfortable with that as long as they're not hanging the hat on the strength of their conclusions. I think the authors did a nice job. Editor's Commentary 
In this well-done QI effort turned into a retrospective observational study, the authors report that phenobarb and benzodiazepine treatment resulted in similar ED length of stay, but in their sample, phenobarb reduced admissions when treating patients with alcohol withdrawal. This was not a trial, and the small n limits the strength of any potential conclusions, and I think the authors described that really well, but this is excellent hypothesis-generating data and a potent reminder for those of us in practice that phenobarb is an option for alcohol withdrawal treatment in the emergency department. Abstract number eight, is headache during pregnancy a higher risk for serious secondary headache cause? A head study report by Kelly et al. in Emergency Medicine Australasia. So pregnancy is generally considered a red flag for any chief complaint, and that's certainly true for people with headache. Theoretically, this could be due to some kind of hypercoagulability or other hormonal changes. However, the authors note there's actually no empiric evidence that headache in pregnant women is actually associated with a higher risk of serious pathology or worse clinical outcomes than headaches in other non-pregnant people that are otherwise similar. The authors here conduct a secondary analysis of the Headache in Emergency Department, HEAD, study to determine the prevalence of serious headaches in pregnant women aged 18 to 50 and to compare that rate with the corresponding rates of serious pathology among similarly aged men and women who are not pregnant. We've covered a couple of studies already from this parent study, the HEAD study. The parent study is a 69-center multinational observational study with mostly prospectively collected data, although we've talked about before, there's a little bit of retrospective data collection in some sites. Serious causes of headache are defined as subarachnoid hemorrhage, intracranial hemorrhage, brain abscess, dissection, cerebral venous thrombosis, and then a host of other terrible things, including preeclampsia and eclampsia. In this study, again, of this, they took this whole parent thing and they identified the women with headaches and the women that had bad outcomes. There were 2,400 women overall, of whom 117 were pregnant. So just 5% of the cohort that was pregnant. So we're starting with 117 patients. Of those 117, six of them, six pregnant women, had a serious cause for their headache. Two of them had subarachnoid hemorrhage. One had another intracranial hemorrhage. One had idiopathic intracranial hypertension, and two had preeclampsia or eclampsia. Importantly, the two that had subarachnoid hemorrhage had classic thunderclap headache with vomiting. The one who had idiopathic intracranial hypertension had vision loss and other classic findings of that. The intracranial hemorrhage patient that wasn't a subarachnoid had progressive headache with nausea, vomiting, and there were no cerebral venous thromboses. The point of sort of detailing that was to show that all of the pregnant women who were diagnosed with a serious pathology had signs that would otherwise have clued the provider in to the diagnosis, even if they weren't pregnant, except for the two that had pregnancy-specific problems, the preeclampsia and eclampsia case. The proportion of non-pregnant women and men of similar ages who had a headache that had serious causes was exactly the same. So it too was right at about 5%. 
So the and statistically similar, similar. So the authors conclude that pregnancy in isolation does not appear to put women with headache at substantially higher risk of serious pathology compared to others. There are a ton of limitations here, including the main one, which is just the numbers are so small. The confidence interval around that serious that estimate of serious pathology ranges from two to ten and a half percent. So that's like just a really big range that differs from the confidence interval around the non-pregnant people. It's a lot more narrow there. So there's still the possibility that there's a difference. Further, they don't describe the stage of pregnancy at all. And that could have a big impact. If all of these six people were in late-stage pregnancy, that could imply that late headache with late-stage pregnancy is a much more, you know, higher risk than pregnancy at an earlier stage, which I think a lot of us would intuit, right? That like, okay, uh, someone who's six weeks pregnant who comes in with a headache probably is pretty similar to somebody who's not pregnant, 38 weeks, totally different ballgame. But we really don't know that because they don't characterize the stage of pregnancy at all. A pregnant patient presenting with headache certainly should put you on alert, particularly for pregnancy-related issues like preeclampsia or eclampsia. But this study just suggests it's not a major red flag that would mandate automatically neuroimaging anyone else. And I think that's the main takeaway from this thing. Yeah, I think, you know, what I liked best about this paper is just sort of the description Mm -hmm. of the, you know, the when they happened, when bad things happen. Because the way I'm understanding it is, you know, if a pregnant patient comes in with a headache and they have something bad, they're going to present just like a non-pregnant patient. You don't have to worry about a more subtle presentation. But the difference is there's a couple of pregnancy-specific diagnoses to be aware of. So think about those but don't focus on some like weird, subtle, super subtle presentation because they present the same. I think that's a great way of taking this all home. Editor's commentary. In this relatively small exploratory study, the risk of serious pathology among pregnant women with headache was similar to the risk among women who were not pregnant or of similarly aged men. The results suggest that pregnancy itself should not be considered a red flag that would mandate a more extensive workup than a similar patient with similar symptoms who was not pregnant. Abstract number nine. Prevalence of intracranial hemorrhage among patients presenting with out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, a systematic review and meta-analysis. This is by Lee et al. from my favorite journal, Resuscitation. Uh Uh-oh. Stand by. (laughs) A primary goal in the care of patients without a hospital cardiac arrest is figuring out what caused the arrest and then treating said cause. Now, obtaining an EKG is pretty I easy. I would argue that stopping said arrest is first. Yeah, fair <laughs> enough. Now, getting the EKG is easy, but the list of potential causative diagnoses is very long, right? So how wide of a net should we cast? That question is a little bit unclear. Intracranial hemorrhage, more specifically subarachnoid, can result in cardiac arrest via either respiratory arrest, secondary to brainstem herniation, or dysrhythmia, secondary to catecholamine release. But the approach to this is not as simple as just scanning every single person who has an arrest. Getting them all to CT is labor-intensive, it's time-intensive, and it competes with other things ongoing that may actually help the patient. So it's like, 
you know, we can't just CT everybody. It's not that simple to get a post-arrest patient to the scanner. Right, and presumably you'd want to do this if you thought it was a really high risk. With It would be like your top priority. I got no, need to know right now if they need neurosurgery to do this. You can't wait like until the blood pressure has stabilized if that's, that's right. high risk. The published incidence of intracranial hemorrhage and out-of-hospital cardiac arrest is between 0.8 and 24%. A little bit of a wide range. Rangey there. So to give more precise incidence data, the authors conduct a systematic review and meta-analysis aiming to estimate the prevalence of ICH among patients who present with non-traumatic out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, identifying possible differences in intracranial prevalence in different geographic settings, and determine potential clinical predictors for ICH in patients with out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. They include 23 studies in their analyses, of which six were only abstracts. They only had the abstract, they didn't have the paper available, with a total of 54,000 patients. Over half the studies were assessed to be at risk of moderate or high risk of bias. Overall, Pooled ICH prevalence was 4.28%. And among patients with documented ROSC, it was 4.14%. Studies that were published in Asia, or patients from Asia, had significantly larger risk ratio, a relative risk of 3.93 when compared with studies published in Europe. The ICH rate was higher in females at an odds ratio of 2.16 and less likely in patients who had a shockable rhythm compared with non-shockable rhythms at an odd ratio of 0.22, and in patients who got ROSC prior to arrival at an odds ratio of 0.27. The methods are not bad, actually, in their systematic review and meta-analysis. The meta-analysis. The meta-analysis part. The statistical analysis is okay, but let's say we give those a pass Mm -hmm. and say they did a pretty good job with what they got The elephant in the room is really what they got, right? right? It's that essentially all these papers are retrospective observational design and resultantly there must be confounding and workup bias that have a huge impact on the findings, right? Because most of the studies, basically all, only include cases that had an out-of-hospital cardiac arrest and a CT, Right. right? And since it is not routine to scan every single person with out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, we have to assume there's some reason that the treating provider suspected a bleed in order to get the CT in the first place. They screamed that they had a headache, and then they went into cardiac arrest. Once you resuscitate them, I would would scan that person, for sure. It's exactly right. So essentially, the rate they end up with, and this is a quote from the paper when in their conclusion, They say the overall prevalence of intracranial hemorrhage and out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, that is incorrect, right? Really what it is, is it's the overall prevalence of intracranial hemorrhage and out-of-hospital cardiac arrest in whom the provider suspects that there might be an intracranial hemorrhage. And those are incredibly different statements, Right. right? And have huge implications on the way we work up these patients. So this is another one of those where I feel their conclusion is very misleading, inaccurate, and if you took it at face value, I think it's going to steer the management of these patients in the wrong direction. You know, what's interesting is that it's still only 4%. I'm actually kind of surprised it wasn't substantially higher because we've covered papers and we've seen it in that 20% range where it's just like, you know, obviously can't be true. But so even in a highly sort of biased environment, 
you know, it's still pretty low at 4%. And that's when people probably suspect it. So for not, you know, for me, this is, you know, again, one of these things you about know, like where, it, where my if approach. If we go deep, it gets yeah, even worse I'm because sure. in those individual papers, the ones who had a bleed, you know, if we've covered a few of those individuals, they all died anyways. Yes. Yeah. You know, so it wasn't right. like. We didn't even talk about, yeah. yeah. Can you do anything about it? Wasn't it wasn't like yeah. saying that the scanner had any value, right. even if you did find it. So, right. you know, this is one of those where just don't, don't believe everything you read, kids. Editor's commentary. In this systematic review and meta-analysis, the authors conclude that about 1 in 20 patients with out-of-hospital cardiac arrest have an intracranial hemorrhage and suggest this rate is high enough to warrant routine CT for these patients. The problem is that to be included, you needed to have an out-of-hospital cardiac arrest and a CT in most of these cases, and their data is retrospective, so their reported rate is actually not for all patients with out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, as they state, but rather the rate among patients in whom the provider believed, for whatever reason, that the chance of intracranial hemorrhage was high enough that a CT was, in fact, warranted. These are very different statements, and we need to take great caution to not misapply their stated findings. Quick take. Abstract number 10. Comparison of the therapeutic efficacy of topical tranexamic acid, epinephrine, and lidocaine in stopping bleeding in non-traumatic epistaxis, a prospective randomized double-blind trial by Ekekiapar, I believe, and it's in the European Review for Medical and Pharmacologic Sciences, a journal that I'm quite uncertain we've never covered a paper from previously. Optimal treatment of anterior epistaxis continues to be a bit of a treatment dilemma. After initial enthusiasm with TXA some years ago, more recent studies have suggested it's not the magic bullet. This is another nail, albeit a small one, in the TXA coffin. It's a small Turkish study comparing topical tranexamic acid with topical epinephrine and topical lidocaine for nosebleeds. Honestly, I'm not exactly sure why they elected to use topical lidocaine as a treatment for nosebleeds. I mean, I wouldn't physiologically think that that would stop a nosebleed. And so in my mind, I'm thinking of that as a placebo. The authors randomized patients in a triple-blinded manner to receive one of the treatment drugs soaked in cotton and applied to the nasal cavity before any attempts at nasal cautery or anything like that. It's not clear if this was a cotton nasal packing or if it was like a rhino rocket nasal tampon kind of thing or just a pledge it because they just don't explain that at all. And they also don't explain if they applied pressure for 15 minutes before they applied this stuff, unfortunately. The primary outcome was the time until the bleeding stopped. So this was a timed study. They excluded patients who were anticoagulated, had trauma, and importantly, those patients that had a history of hypertension, which is kind of an unusual criteria for, for patients. That's with, probably going to exclude a lot of patients. It, it excludes everybody on anticoagulants and hypertension. Well, hypertension, I mean, yeah. that's, especially since hypertension is associated with nosebleeds, probably because of just age, but that is, outcome of bleeding cessation, that's in line with most of the stuff. Time in to this bleeding cessation. Yeah, yeah. It, it, this thing, but the, the excluding all those people is weird. I think they excluded the hypertensives because they were giving them the epi and mm. they were, were and, and it was randomized. So that, you know, they had to exclude anybody who had a contraindication to epi. And I guess the, in their mind's eye, they said, you know, that's a contraindication. So I think that's why they don't exactly explain that. 
Ultimately, 108 people were randomized, mean age 56. They don't comment on how many were on antiplatelet agents, which is something we want to note. Those weren't excluded, but they just don't tell us how many were on it. For 13 subjects, the bleeding never stopped or didn't stop within 20 minutes, right? So, and that was five out of 36 in the lidocaine group, four out of 36 in the epi group, and four out of 36 in the TXA group. So, no obvious difference between the two groups or the three groups. For the remaining 95% of the patients, the time till bleeding cessation was similar across the treatment groups, averaging just under 10 minutes, no statistical significance. There were no noted side effects, and the systolic blood pressure they actually calculated over time was actually a little bit lower in the group that got epinephrine compared to the group that got placebo, or not placebo, lidocaine and tranexamic acid. They don't really explain that, but it was only slightly different, but it did reach statistical significance. They conclude that cotton soaked with either TXA, lidocaine, or epinephrine was equally effective at stopping anterior epistaxis. And since lidocaine is likely a placebo, it tends to suggest that TXA may not be truly effective at helping stop nosebleeds. Now, the problem here is that almost all nosebleeds, you know, stop easily in the emergency department, either with direct compression or just a little bit of time. So we're really interested in the problem nosebleeds. The ones that persist despite, you know, sort of really long, adequate compression, or those that occur in people that are more likely to have persistent bleeding, like patients that are on antiplatelets, patients that are on anticoagulants. And this study just doesn't help us determine if one of these agents is better in those types of patients. Editor's commentary. This is a small, nicely conducted RCT of a select group of low-risk nosebleed patients. The results show that cotton-soaked TXA, epinephrine, and or lidocaine are similarly effective at stopping the bleeding. Quick take. Abstract number 11. Success rate of anterior shoulder dislocation reduction by emergency physicians, a retrospective cohort study. This is by Hayashi et al. From acute medicine and surgery. Shoulder dislocations are the most common type of dislocation seen in the ED, making up about 50% of dislocations. And although they are treated a lot, there's actually not much in the way of a consensus on sort of best technique for reduction or optimal use of sedatives or analgesics and or the value of nerve blocks and things like intraarticular injections. In this retrospective cohort study from Japan, the authors basically described their experience in the ED with shoulder dislocations over a 15-year period from 2006 to 2021. It's a chart review, and there's really not much in the way of methods other than just enough to get a sense of kind of the types of data they collected, so a little bit light. Of the 244 patients, the ED physician reduction success rate was 92.2%. So excellent. Of the 19 that could not be reduced by an ED doc over this 15-year period, only ran into 19, 17 were reduced in the ED by an orthopedic surgeon, and two needed to go to the OR. In terms of sort of, you know, state of play, pain management, 11.4% got an IV analgesic, 12.7% got a sedative, over 50% got an IA injection, and 25% got nothing at all. 
It would have been nice to look at success rate by techniques, because that's sort of what they say in the intro. Which one of these is best, or need to switch techniques, or frequency of different techniques? But unfortunately, the technique was not described yeah. in half who the cases. Does? Yeah, who does? They just said, in a retrospective we did chart review, yeah. and we reduced Pulled it. Pulled on shoulder, went back in. I think I wish we could learn a little bit more nuanced information here, because it is 15 years worth of data. But the main take home for me is that our success rate overall is pretty high. Yeah. So I think it's worth knowing a few different techniques. These are easy enough to like watch on the interweb and become comfortable with several options for analgesia, you know, both like doing nothing, doing IA, just kind of familiarize yourself with a few things because if you've got a full toolkit, your success rate is over 90%. Editor's commentary. Although we don't learn much about success rates of different techniques or best ways to provide analgesia for shoulder dislocations, in this retrospective study, we do learn that left to our own devices, we are actually highly successful at reducing these. Learn and practice a few different techniques and don't be afraid to switch methods or try some analgesia if you run into a difficult dislocation. Success is seen in over 90% of cases. Abstract number 12, albuterol budesonide fixed-dose combination rescue inhaler for asthma by Poppy et al. And this is in the New England Journal of Medicine. So I don't know if you know this, Sanjay, but asthma is caused by airway inflammation. I know that Poppy got sloppy. <laughs> that's another great, that is not, that's early to, where, where are we there? That's early 90s. That's yeah. early Poppy getting sloppy on Seinfeld. Yeah. The mainstay of chronic management is anti-inflammatory inhalers, obviously. The mainstay of severe exacerbations is systemic steroids to stop the inflammation and beta agonists to provide temporary bronchial relaxation. What is less certain is what to do in between when an asthma sufferer starts having a little bit of a flare and needs a rescue puff. Historically, these flares have been self-treated with short-acting beta agonists, albuterol, right? which make people feel a little bit better, but do not change anything on the underlying inflammation that may be building up. This study looks at the effect of combination PRN inhaled albuterol combined with inhaled steroids at reducing the incidence of severe asthma exacerbation. The question is really, you're an asthmatic and you start to feel like, oh, I'm having a little thing, I just need, I need a little help. Should I take pure albuterol? Or should I take a combo albuterol with some steroid? It's a massive, manufactured-sponsored study in which the patients of a variety of ages were randomized one-to-one-to-one to either albuterol or a mixture of albuterol and budesonide at one of two different doses, sort of a high dose and a, and a, a little bit more medium dose. To be eligible, patients had to have relatively poorly controlled asthma. No COPD patients, just asthma patients. This relatively poor control was evidenced by and large by the fact that they had an ED visit or more within the previous uh, 12 months. That's the main way. But you could also, like if the FEV1 was low or something, but mostly it was ED visits or hospitalizations. The primary outcome was the time to a severe asthma exacerbation across the treatment arms. And again, severe asthma exacerbation here is basically an ED visit. And it was evaluated on an intent-to-treat basis. There were 3,000 people randomized from throughout the world. The mean age was 50. So even though they allowed enrollment down to the age of four, 
only 3% of the population was actually in the pediatric age group. So this is really an adult study. People actually used these rescue meds a ton. The mean inhaled dose was over two puffs daily in the group. So, you know, these are people with poorly controlled asthma. They're needing to take a couple of puffs a day just to get through the day. And so it just gives you a little flavor of what's going on there. In terms of the key findings, the hazard ratio for a severe asthma exacerbation was 0.74 in the high-dose inhaled steroid group, albuterol plus high-dose inhaled steroid group, and somewhat similar in the lower-dose group. In terms of numbers that I think are a little bit more meaningful, the annualized rate of severe exacerbations was 43 per 100 patients for the high-dose steroid group compared with 58 per 100 patients in the albuterol group. An absolute difference of 15 per 100 patients or a number needed to treat of 7 to 8 to prevent one severe episode. Side effects over the study period were generally very mild and similar across the groups, but it should be noted that the total study duration was no more than two years. So nobody was observed for 20 years of getting this, this sort of approach. And is it possible that over long periods of time, getting more inhaled corticosteroids on this PRN basis could cause some problems? That's just not evaluable in the study. But basically, this study suggests that at least for patients with asthma at higher risk, rescue therapy should consist of short-acting beta agonists and inhaled steroids And actually, there are other high-quality RCTs that are consistent with these findings. This strategy is actually now recommended by this thing called GINA, or the Global Initiative for Asthma. And I think, honestly, it's something that we should start to consider, you know, a lot in the ED, because almost by definition, anybody that we're seeing in the ED that's having an asthma exacerbation is a high-risk person. And, you know, when we give them their, you know, refill to go home with for albuterol, it would be consistent with guidelines to switch that from albuterol to albuterol with an, you know, an inhaled corticosteroid. So this is actually kind of a big paper for us. I'm not a hundred percent ready to do this myself because these guidelines have just changed and I'm just need to get my head wrapped around it. But I think if we're thinking about leading edge ways that we can help ED patients with asthma exacerbations, and prevent future exacerbations, this actually might be viable. And I wouldn't be at all surprised that we see a wholesale shift into this in the coming years. Yeah. And if nothing else, it seems like at this point in time, if the patient has a primary care doctor, you could at least plant the seed Mm -hmm. and say, hey, I've seen you here a couple times now. You know, there is something emerging that there might be a better type of inhaler for you. Maybe you can ask your doctor about it next time you see them. Editor's Commentary. This is more compelling evidence that rescue medications for asthma should include inhaled steroids and not just inhaled bronchodilators, at least for patients with moderate to severe asthma. Since most patients treated in the ED qualify for this definition, ED providers should consider switching to this strategy over short-acting beta agonists alone when prescribing medications for patients to take PRN at home. Quick take. Abstract number 13, intravenous vitamin C in adults with sepsis in the ICU. This is by La Montagna et al. from the New England Journal of Medicine. So background here is with vitamin C. It's like vitamin C for sepsis. I thought that was for the common cold or something like that. 
It's, it's an, equally effective. Yeah. Spoiler alert. <laughs> so it is an antioxidant which could theoretically mitigate tissue injury caused by oxidative stress and levels of vitamin C levels have been observed to be low in many critically ill patients. That's sort of like why people think this might have value. And then there was a study published in CHEST in 2017 with vitamin C as part of a bundle that showed a greater than 30% absolute mortality reduction in patients with sepsis, which is biologically impossible and has been criticized robustly since its publication. Including on this program. But since then, we have seen the vitamin randomized control trial, the oranges trial, the axe trial, and the victus trial, all of which have yielded essentially negative results except for some underpowered outcomes or changes in primary outcomes, despite having really great names. The Citrus Ali randomized control trial had a counterintuitive finding of vitamin C being associated with lower mortality, but without any observable effect on the inflammatory markers that it was supposed to affect to generate that decreased mortality. This is the lessening organ dysfunction with vitamin C trial. I'm, I'm waiting for it. Give it to me. The love it trial. Oh, guys, Dr. La Montagna, well done, sir. Love it. <laughs> this is a randomized placebo-controlled trial testing high-dose vitamin C on 872 adult patients with proven or suspected infection on pressors from 35 ICUs in Canada, France, and New Zealand. The primary composite outcome of 28-day death or persistent organ dysfunction occurred in 44.5% of the vitamin C group versus 38.5% of the control group, a statistically significant evidence of harm. So this is another really well-done trial with a really cool name, but is a little bit different than the others that it shows it might just not be neutral, it might be harmful. Editor's commentary. In this large multinational blinded randomized control trial, the authors found that adult patients on pressors in the ICU with sepsis who received vitamin C had increased risk of death or persistent organ dysfunction as compared with those who received placebo. The names of all of these vitamin C trials are great, but the outcomes are just plain bad. Abstract number 14, and dexanet alpha effectiveness and safety versus four-factor PCC in intracranial hemorrhage while on apixaban or rivaroxaban, a single-center retrospective matched cohort analysis. This is by Parcells et al. in the American Journal of Emergency Medicine. I'm sorry, Dr. Parcells, but you're not going to win the Rick Bucata Award with a yeah, title like that. you didn't tell us what happened. It was really long, and you didn't tell us what happened. <laughs> Although, we could come up with a new award yeah. for longest title. I get the, the Dr. Parcells Award. Doesn't seem right. <laughs> Name's not long enough. <laughs> That's right. It used to be a very long name. But this was Excellent. Excellent <laughs> idea. You have thoughts out there, people? Send them in. I'm starting to think of a slew of awards <laughs> we could come up with. Longest title. Worst Mo- title. Worst title. The most, yeah, the most inaccurate title of the month, uh, the coveted. This is basically your raspberry award for titles. Anyway, the new generation of DOACs, particularly the 10A inhibitors, has caused sort of an upheaval in reversal therapy indications. For warfarin-associated bleeding, it is abundantly clear 
that four-factor PCC is the way to go. Four-factor PCC repletes the four vitamin K-dependent factors that are heavily depleted by warfarin. The 10A inhibitors directly poison activated factor 10A, at least theoretically, and this has always been a problem for me, adding 10A into the blood of people that have a poison for 10A in the blood should not necessarily overcome the poison. So PCCs may not be highly effective for reversal of 10A inhibitors. Enter Andexanet Alpha, a specific reversal agent for 10A inhibitors that binds up the rivaroxaban or apixaban and allows native factor 10A to go about its business converting prothrombin to thrombin. There are a couple of problems with Andexanet Alpha. The first one is it's super, super expensive. PCCs are pretty expensive. This stuff blows them out the water, typically around $10,000 per full treatment course. The second problem is that it's associated with a thrombotic event rate that has variably been described as higher than PCCs, so in the sort of 10 to 20% rate, which is not great, obviously. The authors here attempt to directly answer the question of which is safer and more effective at achieving good hemostasis for intracranial hemorrhage in the context of apixaban or rivaroxaban-associated bleeding, indexinate alpha or four-factor PCC. The study is a single health system, multi-site, retrospective chart review looking at patients on one of these 10A inhibitors and who had intracranial hemorrhage who were treated with either indexinate alpha or four-factor PCC. This was from 2016 to 2020. Since this was a retrospective study and selection bias would likely be an issue, the authors elected to match patients based on the volume of the intracranial hemorrhage observed on the initial CT. Basically, each case that got indexinate alpha estimated the intracranial hemorrhage volume and matched that with a case who got PCC who had a similar intracranial hemorrhage volume. They don't match on anything else. They don't match on age or gender or, importantly, the timing since the last dose of your factor 10A inhibitor consumption, which I think would be important. The key outcome was good hemostasis, and that was defined as no more than a 35% increase of the hemorrhage on subsequent CT. And that's actually been used as a definition in other studies like that. So that's not a, a wacky definition or anything like that. The key safety outcome was the development of a thrombotic event within 14 days. Otherwise, the chart review methods are just not well described, particularly the key issue of whether or not the investigators were aware of the subject treatment group when they were assessing for outcomes. That's a big problem. They ended up with only 26 patients in this health system over this few-year period that had been treated with indexinate alpha, and those 26 were matched with 26 who got four-factor PCC. So even altogether, 52 patients, a very small study. The group treated with indexinate alpha was a bit older, 83 years old versus 77 in the PCC study, but otherwise looked pretty similar, including their initial GCS which the mean GCS for both groups was 14.5. So these are not very sick patients with intracranial hemorrhage. Good hemostasis occurred in 92% of the indexinate alpha group and 89% of the PCC group. No statistical significant difference between the two. New thrombotic events 
reportedly occurred in 27% of the patients that got andexanet alpha within 14 days, compared with only 12% of the PCC group within 14 days. That was not statistically significant either, but there's pretty big difference in those groups, 27 versus 12%. They do not describe what those thrombotic events were. Were they, you know, a TIA, were they a little DVT, or were they like a massive stroke or a huge MI or something like that? The authors strongly suggest that PCC may be safer than endexinet alpha. They don't exactly say that directly, but it's very much implied. To me, though, this is a really limited study. It's super small. It relies on spotty chart review methods and does not do a good enough job, in my opinion, of dealing with the possibility that andexanet alpha may have been reserved for sicker patients. Just matching on size of stroke or volume is not necessarily the way to go on that one. What it does for me is really establish that we really do need an RCT, and apparently there is one ongoing enrollment ongoing. We need an RCT here if people are seriously considering PCC reversal for 10A inhibitors. For me, the truth is that we rarely need to give this stuff in anybody. I mean, that's just the reality, right? Most people with head bleeds who are on one of these medications probably forgot to take the medication in the first place. And then by the time, if they did take their morning medicine, by the time they fall, hit their head, have a bleed, get to an ER, get a head scan, and someone finds an antidote, it's probably out of their system. That's the beauty of these medications really compared to like a warfarin where you know, it takes days to reverse if you don't you know, replete the medication. So I don't think for the large majority of bleeds, you really need this. I mean, it's really hard for me to imagine a tiny head bleed with a GCS of 15 really needs andexanet alpha or four-factor PCC. Yeah, and I think that that's probably for me that that is the big limitation of this yeah. paper is we don't know if these people were taking the meds or not. I don't even know how they decided that was the patient who was taking that you know, factor 10A but, inhibitor. But because in, in fairness... There's no real obvious way to do that. I agree, but I guess my point is if you know we have no measure and none of them were on it, let's say, or they were all out of the window where some treatment could have some benefit, right. then all you have is a risk of harm, right? Sure. Because then you can't have any no, that's benefit exactly from where I'm either going. one. Like, it's very possible so that placebo would have worked just as well that's on this the, group. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. So this, with this very limited methodology, I agree. I don't know what you can conclude yeah. here. So, Other than- One's a lot more expensive than the other. Yeah, exactly. But if the other one doesn't work at all, then, you know, then the expense of PCCs is, that's just waste. So, you know, for me, if you really believe that somebody has a 10A, is poisoned with 10A, right? They, I, I took it a half hour ago. We saw a grandma take She fell, hit her head, has this bleed. She fell leaving the pharmacy right. after she took so it. We believe we need to reverse it because the bleed is either substantial or whatever else. Then for me, I'm I'm going to use Andexanet Alpha. I'm not going to use this four-factor PCC. As far as I'm concerned, that's experimental. There's theoretic reasons to think it wouldn't work, so I'm going to use the real deal. If the patient doesn't need anything, you know, then don't yeah, give it. Then don't give anything. And for what it's worth, the Hematology Society guidelines say that if someone's on a, a factor 10A inhibitor, you can give them PCCs or you cannot give them PCCs. But it also says that you have to give them endexanet alpha or PCCs. Does that make sense? So you're not allowed, to, if, if they're on it, you're not allowed to give them nothing. You could give both, I guess, is the point of the society guidelines. So for me, that just says, you know, give them the antidote for that drug if they have it. And if they don't, if you're not worried about it, then don't give them anything. Edit this commentary. This small, limited, retrospective study 
showed that intracranial hemorrhage control was similar between patients on 10A inhibitors who were reversed with PCC and those reversed with endexinet alpha. However, there was a hint towards more thrombotic complications from endexinet alpha. These findings must be repeated in an RCT before being taken to the bedside. Abstract number 15. Ability of pain scoring scales to differentiate between patients desiring analgesia and those who do not in the ED. This is by Schweitzer et al. from the American Journal of Emergency Medicine. Pain is a common reason for an ED visit, and the verbal rating scale, the VRS, or a numeric rating scale, NRS, are two common ways to quantify the amount of pain that a patient is in. These, along with the VAS, have been well-validated and are quick to administer, but in truth, there's still some subjectivity to it, right? One person's five may just be another person's one, right? That's just the fact of it. Further, there can be discrepancies between the patient's reported pain score and the provider's perceived patient's pain level. You know, they may say it's an eight, but you think it's a two or the flip. They may say, I'm doing okay. And you're like, your leg is broken. I'm going to give you some form of analgesia. And it is less well understood how these scores impact the actual delivery of analgesia. So these authors from this paper in Switzerland conduct a nine-year retrospective observational study with the goal of determining if pain scores actually do differentiate between patients who want pain medications and were provided them from those that do not. They included all patients seen in the ED with a non-zero first documented pain score in the EHR, and something unique to their system is there's a standardized field in the chart. It says pain score, you know, put some documentation there, and desire to get analgesia. Do you, would you like something for pain? Yes okay. or no? That's a standard part of the approach to every single patient that they see. I love it. And I, I think, honestly, we could get rid of the pain score and just have that box. It'd be more useful. Well, <laughs> that's what they're asking, right? Or could you just do the pain score? That's the question they're asking. Oh, I get it. So they identified 130,000 ED visits with a non-zero pain score with enough data in the chart to be able to do what they wanted to do. Analgesia was given to all patients that requested it, 100% of the time. You said you want something, you got something. They don't say what proportion of the patients that did not request it still got in. And maybe they just give everybody Tylenol. I'm not sure, but... You know, the ones who asked for it definitely got it. The proportion of patients desiring pain medication was between 4.1 to 17.8 in the pain score range 0.5 to 3.5. And they have some explanation why they kind of, you know, divide these out into different segments. It was between a third and two-third of the range who had a stated pain score between 4 and 6.5 and between a third and 85% in the range who had a pain score between 7 and 10. They run a regression. They generate rock curves. They have a lot of patients here. They can do a lot with their data and suggest that the optimal threshold for predicting the desire for pain medication would be a pain score of 4.25 with a sensitivity of 0.86 and a specificity of 0.68. And they you actually can't give a, you can't get a 4.25. Well, I understood, <laughs> but they actually 
actually, it's very complicated because the NRS is actually different than the VRS. So they kind of try to merge them together. And that's why the scores and saying, reporting are so weird. You can weird. only give a four or a five unless you're do- using a- Generally speaking, the recommendation is if somebody's over a four, they probably need some pain medication. That's kind of in line yeah. with what we say about pain medication. They also present their results graphically and Basically, the slopes go in opposite directions at about the same pace. So at the, you know, the one end of the scale, you know, the people who don't really have the high pain scores, most of them don't want medications. The other end, those who have high pain scores, most of them do. But they still draw attention to the extremes of the graph. The extreme ends basically saying about one out of five of patients with mild self-reported pain still wanted pain medication. Right. And about one out of three patients with severe pain actually said, nah, I'm okay. I'm I don't need any pain medication. They can't provide information on what analgesics were used for different pain severities and things like that because they say these orders, the order for analgesia is actually a written order mm. that they're ED. So they can't get it from the EHR. And one major limitation is that it's possible that providers who were filling out that desire for pain medication field filled it out based on their decision of right. whether or not they were actually going to give it. Right. You know, so we, we just don't know there. But this is pretty cool data. I think it's very interesting. It's a large sample. I you think one of the things that, well, uh, sort of a question comment. I think what this highlights, which is something we see all the time, that there's a central tendency, right? Of like, okay, when the pain score gets over five or we're four and a half, whatever their thing is. That people want pain medicine. But we we often, I think too infrequently, don't think about the range, right? The, and, and I think that that's really the what's useful here and what's interesting is to remind us that even though there's a central tendency, even in Switzerland where we don't think of like all oh, these patients is, you know, they're, oh, they just are seeking pain medications and stuff like that. There's still 20% of the people in these low range still want this stuff. And so you can't just go by central tendencies. Yeah, and that's really what their, I think, their emphasis on. Their, their conclusion is very well written. The mm-hmm. paper's well written. Is they're sort of saying, you know, there's these general statements out there that somebody has a pain score of four. If it's over that, they're probably going to want pain meds. And if it's less than that, they're probably not. They're trying to say, like, emphasize the word probably. Yeah, it's not right? like it's a, not a 0% hard, versus 100%. Right. It's not a hard line. Yeah. There is a scale, like you said. So just be aware of that and be thinking about it when you're, Treating pain in the emergency department. Editor's commentary. In this large retrospective cohort study from Switzerland, the authors demonstrate that using a pain score in isolation to determine which patients want analgesia will generate large discrepancies on both ends of the pain spectrum. One person's five truly may be another person's one, and we should be mindful about asking for the desire for pain medication on a more routine basis, regardless of what the documented numeric pain score is. Abstract number 16. Suicidal ideation and sobriety. Should acute alcohol intoxication be taken into account for psychiatric evaluation? Question mark. This is by Keyes et al., and it's in the journal Alcoholism, Clinical and Experimental Research. So this is an interesting study looking at how often patients who are drunk and suicidal lose the suicidal when they sober up. And how does this compare to people who are simply suicidal but not intoxicated? 
The study is a single-site retrospective analysis of patients who present to one ED in 2017. To be included, the patients had to have suicidal ideation, a blood alcohol level drawn, which they claim was standard practice for suicidal patients at their hospital, and a behavioral health consult, which they also say is standard practice for suicidal patients. I know that might be true. I'm just, that was pretty much the entry criteria. By convention at this hospital, the behavioral health consultation did not occur until after the BAL, the blood alcohol level, had dropped to below 80. So they repeated it. And it's a little vague in the methods, but they that's, sort of, that's not something I've heard of before. That's, that's a little different. Yeah. Well, they say that that happens a lot of places. I, it's not how we do it where we, we work. But uh, if we waited to the below 80, they might be in the, severe withdrawal. No, well, that's the point. So the chart review methods are not fully described, actually. They don't do a great job of describing them, but what they do describe actually suggests they did a pretty good job. They definitely say they have like a code book and things like that. They just don't describe some of the stuff like according to the best practices there, but I'm sort of giving them a little bit of a pass on the chart review methods. Over the one-year period, they identified 344 patients with suicidal ideation and the blood alcohol drawn. Of those, 61 patients, so about 20%, had a blood alcohol level of over 80, okay? Of the other ones, the 283 that had a blood alcohol less than 80, right? 62% of them, so just about two-thirds of them, remained suicidal when they were assessed by the behavioral team. I was seen by the ED doc, said, you're suicidal, okay, check the blood, do whatever they do, then consult the behavioral team. Two-thirds of them were still suicidal at that time. In contrast, only 19 of the 61 who were intoxicated were still suicidal, 19 out of 61, which is 38%, so one-third less, were still suicidal when the behavioral team assessed them for the first time. So when they sobered up, only a third of them were still suicidal. That's correct, versus two-thirds when they're sort of assessed right away. The authors conclude that this supports waiting until patients are clinically sober before definitively assessing them for suicidal ideation. That seems reasonable on its face, but, well, look, I guess I'll say I agree it's ridiculous to perform a serious mental health investigation on someone who's totally bombed, right? Oh, if they're doing that stuff, yeah, they don't need to be seen by you know, anybody. You're not going to gain any useful information then. But I'm not sure the findings actually support this very strongly, mostly because they don't tell us the time. They don't tell us the time between the initial MD assessment and the follow-up behavioral health specialist assessment. Look, we know that basically almost all people with suicidal ideation will eventually stop having it, right? Or at least they'll stop telling the doctors they have it so that they can be discharged, right? It is extremely likely that patients who are intoxicated did not get their behavioral evaluation until much later in their ED visit because they had to become unintoxicated which may account for the lower reported incidence of persistent suicidality, that just over time, people are like, I was feeling suicidal, you know, now I'm calmer, whatever's going on, I feel better, you know, I'm not going to do it. There's just no way to know. In fact, the main lesson of this paper for me may be that people with suicidal ideation simply stop having suicidal ideation over time, and that maybe we should give all people a little time to sleep it off. Remember, A third of the people stopped having suicidal ideation when presumably they were assessed by the behavioral team relatively shortly after their initial ED encounter. So 
that's sort of my take home on this is that, you know, you should be frequently reassessing people for suicidal ideation. And that should be true whether they're intoxicated or not intoxicated. You know, we're going to see the symptoms may resolve and they could potentially go home. Editor's commentary. This is a fairly limited study purportedly showing that patients with suicidal ideation who are intoxicated are often no longer suicidal once sober. Persistent suicidal ideation is more common in patients who are not intoxicated with alcohol. This may be true, but the analysis is confounded by the time in the ED it takes to sober up, which might likewise independently affect continued suicidal ideation. Regardless of sobriety, patients should be reassessed at regular intervals to determine ongoing symptoms and suitability for discharge. House of Medicine. Abstract number 17. Antibiotic Use and Vaccine Antibody Levels by Chapman et al. from Pediatrics. Vaccines have dramatically impacted the way we approach fever in kids, right? As the DTaP, the H-flu vaccine, inactivated polio, and pneumococcal vaccine are given in a primary series of three immunizations before six months of age with booster immunizations after 12 months of age. And the reason I kind of go through that a little bit is because the authors say that while this series is enough for most kids, every kid kind of gets the same series of vaccinations, Research has actually shown that the robustness of the response varies on an individual level, and the causes of this variance are multifactorial, including possible things like genetics, you know, maybe people just respond differently to vaccinations, geography, and even gut flora composition, so what things are going on in your body. Since antibiotics do change our gut microbiome, these authors are conducting a cohort study to evaluate the impact of antibiotic use on vaccine-induced antibody levels in kids in the first two years of life. This is a retrospective, unplanned secondary analysis of 560 kids enrolled in a parent cohort study about respiratory infections who receive routine blood draws every three months. During the study period, 342 children received antibiotics and 218 did not. So more got antibiotics that did not, but these were also kids who had respiratory infection, URIs, exactly right. The predominant antibiotics prescribed were amoxicillin, ceftonir, augmentin, and ceftriaxone. Vaccine-induced antibody levels to several DTaP and pneumococcal conjugate vaccine antigens were lower in a statistically significant level in children who were given antibiotics. And they had a higher frequency of vaccine-induced antibodies that fell below what's considered a lab protective level, like what we'd say they are immune to this thing, at 9 and 12 months of age. The more courses of antibiotics you received, the lower your vaccine-induced antibody levels were for all antigens. So for example, each additional course of antibiotics lowered your pneumococcal antibody levels by 10.4%. Interestingly, amoxicillin was not associated with antibody measurements below protective levels, whereas the others, augmentin, ceftriaxone, and ceftonir, all were. 
Augmentin was the only antibiotic with sufficient data to compare long and short courses, 5-day course versus 10-day course, and they observed a 10-day course was negatively associated with protective antibody levels within 30 days of completion of the antibiotic course, but a 5-day course was not. Now, don't get me wrong. Before we get very excited, the message is good, right, that this is another reason to not give unnecessary antibiotics, but a major limitation to all of this, which is not anywhere in the paper, it's not in the discussion, it's not anything, is that maybe the kids who got antibiotics were sicker for some other reason. They were just like a sicker group of that's kids. why they got sick. And that's mm-hmm. why they got sick, and that's why their antibody levels were lower. And it wasn't the antibiotics that lowered the antibody levels, right? Now, there's a hint of a dose response, I guess, that sort of argues against this a little bit. But they didn't include like a table listing number of illnesses in each group or something like that. They didn't attempt any matching. So they sort of imply causation that it's the antibiotics that are dropping these antibody levels. But I'm just not sure we can do that based on their data, although I do love the message. commentary. In this cohort study of kids under two years old, the authors report that kids who got antibiotics were observed to have lower vaccine-induced antibody levels than kids who did not. Antibody levels were lowest in those who received broad-spectrum antibiotics, longer courses, and multiple rounds of medications. The issue here is that we just can't assume causation, as there may be an unmeasured confounder that causes kids to both get sick and have low antibody levels. But even if there is a hint of truth, The message overall is good that we should be judicious about antibiotic use and use narrow spectrum and short courses of antibiotics when clinically appropriate. Abstract number 18, Pragmatic Clinical Trial Design in Emergency Medicine, Study Considerations and Design Types by Gettle et al. And this is an academic emergency medicine. So this is a pretty well-written article that walks through the rationale for pragmatic trials. And I thought I'd include it in our database since we do increasingly see these types of trials and usually do not get too far in the weeds as to what really constitutes pragmatic design and why authors make decisions to go this route as opposed to some other designs. In the first section of the manuscript, the authors really distinguish between what they call explanatory trials versus pragmatic trials. For our purposes, explanatory trials are what we typically think of as like sort of your randomized, individual-level, well-controlled trial. Think of these like a laboratory trial with very explicit and stringent enrollment and exclusion criteria, and every effort is made to isolate a single intervention X. In essence, this trial answers, this type of trial answers the question, does X work under ideal circumstances? Some of these trials could be considered like proof of concept or part of the efficacy literature. Studies that attempt to answer basic scientific pathways and things are usually here. Often in clinical medicine, and in particular in emergency medicine, the more relevant question is whether X works in real world. Yeah, we know it works when it's done a research lab or super high-powered research institution, but does it work at two in the morning with our patients in the emergency department? Yeah, once you take into account compliance and comorbidities and everything else. To to screen people and get ideal candidates and all of this. That makes sense. Yeah, of course. And that is much more pragmatic. And that's what a pragmatic trial attempts to answer. Under those conditions, does it work? 
this is more consistent with the sort of effectiveness as opposed to the efficacy thing. And this is these types of trials, these pragmatic trials that answer that type of question tend to be more generalizable. The article goes on to look at a tool called the Precise 2, which is the Pragmatic Explanatory Continuum Indicator Summary Tool. It's a little technical, but it's still probably worth 30 seconds. They spent a couple pages on it. It's a framework for considering trials and sort of helps study designers and maybe readers settle on whether the study they're designing or reading is more pragmatic or explanatory. The nine domains are eligibility, recruitment, setting, organization, delivery flexibility, adherence flexibility, follow-up, primary outcome, and primary analysis. Each of these exist on a continuum from sort of highly pragmatic to highly explanatory. And I just picked an example, but for the example in the domain of organization, the pragmatic trial would require minimal structural changes to a clinical environment and integrate within the workflow suggesting that the intervention, if it were successful, could work outside of a trial framework. Whereas an explanatory trial might require big changes to workflow, new equipment, new personnel, etc., that are impractical in most settings. It could only be realistically supported with dedicated research dollars. So that's sort of like those are the domains that influence something about pragmatic versus explanatory. Another issue for pragmatic trials is the question of randomization. They go through a nice discussion of randomization in pragmatic trials. Pragmatic trials are often randomized at a cluster level, if they're randomized. I guess mostly if they're going to be called trials, they will be randomized, like an ED, right? Not at the individual level, but at like a whole ED. This makes enrollment a lot easier. Everybody at this site gets X treatment strategy, and it minimizes contamination where people randomized to X just get Y because like the nurses are like, I like doing Y. I like proning the patient. You told me not to, but I do it anyway. But it means there's less power to detect treatment effects because an individual subject's results cannot be reasonably considered to be independent of another subject who's in the same cluster. There's a nice discussion of cluster designs and the issues that arise when the clusters are too big or when the intraclass correlation is too high, meaning that the result within the cluster, the cluster itself determines your outcome as opposed to the treatment effect or the treatment, uh, uh, the effect of the drug or whatever you're studying. But the general answer they summarize is you need more clusters rather than you need more patients. Finally, the authors review some really pragmatic trial designs that we commonly see in the literature, including parallel designs crossover type trials, and step wedge designs. And I won't go into each of those, but if you're interested, there's like maybe a one-page discussion, not even a one-page, it's really just a few paragraph discussion of each of those that's very informative. Again, this is a methodology paper. It's a narrative paper. It's relatively short. It's a nice synthesis of a lot of concepts that we touch on periodically throughout the EMA show. So I'd recommend it to people with a little more interest in study design and methods. Editor's commentary. This narrative manuscript review describes critical differences between explanatory trials and pragmatic trials. The authors review the precise two framework that helps define pragmatic considerations in nine key domains of trial development and concludes with the discussion of common issues with randomization in pragmatic trials and specific design types, including crossover and step wedge designs. The review is well-written, 
does not use excessive jargon and is accessible to physicians who are not trialists, but may be interested in trial design. Abstract number 19. Office phone-first systems reduce ED and urgent care utilization by Medicaid-enrolled children. This is by Poole et al. from Academic Pediatrics, our first contender for the Rick Bucata Award of the month. But also for a raspberry. (laughs) Wow. Got them both. Got them both. Really stacking up the awards. (laughs) Medicaid-enrolled children are almost five times more likely than commercially insured children to be seen in an ED, resulting in massive cost of the healthcare system and creating a more fragmented care that might ignore chronic health issues and more routine health issues that come up among pediatric patients. Although there is data suggesting phone-based triage and advice can reduce ED visits among kids with commercial insurance, the authors here say that this relationship has not been explored very well among Medicare-enrolled children. So these authors from Denver report on the impact of a QI-style intervention that they implemented called the Phone First Services, which basically sort of has three arms to it by my read. Number one is it has enhanced office hours, telephone, triage, and advice with available same-day appointments. This isn't an after-hours program. Number two, they do follow-up calls for parents of children self-referred to an ED or urgent care. So if one of their patients shows up at ED, they call them and say, hey, why'd you go? Why didn't you call us? You know, why didn't you see if we could help you first? And part three is parent education to telephone the office prior to seeking acute care. So if something goes wrong with your kid and it's two in the afternoon before taking them to urgent care, call us and see if we can help. So just some education there. This suite of initiatives, like I said, is a little bit unique in that they all occurred during regular business hours. So this wasn't like they hired somebody to work the night shift or something. So if a kid woke up with fever at two in the morning, you could call. They're just saying, hey, nine to five office hours is something we can do to prevent ED visits. They then applied the intervention at three different pediatric practices, and they present data for each one individually, and they give a lot of description about them, basically saying the time it took to get them going was different at the different sites, and some of the sort of effectiveness was different because they did have to hire somebody to do this, to sit there and answer the phone, and sort of keeping that person on staff was a little bit different at site three than it was at site one, so they present it individually, which I think is right. The rate of emergency department and urgent care visits in 2017 decreased by, these numbers are pretty big, 60% at site one, 80% at site two, and 24% at site three compared with baseline rates collected pre-intervention at 2015. Looking at the graphs, so they're kind of like, ED visits went down by 80%. They have the graphs listed for all, for year by year, actually a little more granular than that for all three sites. And the slopes look more like the decline was gradual. It wasn't like all of a sudden there was a big drop off. Over time, these numbers went down. They then say, this is kind of a weird statement in there, that the ED visit rates were unchanged between the two time periods in a control region. So it wasn't like, you know, Medicaid visits went down, just generally speaking over that time period but they don't really say where that was or what that was. They just say there was a control region. They also conducted a qualitative piece to this. In phone surveys, 94% of parents said they were satisfied with their ED urgent care follow-up call. That was the one they said, hey, were you okay with that, that we called you after ED visit? 
They do then a cost analysis piece and estimate that about 12 bucks were saved by each member not going to the ED would translate into an annual savings of almost $7 billion across every Medicaid-enrolled kid annually in the United States. However, they don't comment on the cost to run the program. But again, they do say they had a lot of difficulty keeping it up and running, yeah. particularly in this Site C or Site 3. So I have no idea how to figure that into the calculus, the headache and the cost to actually run this thing. And of course, they don't provide any outcome data, right? So we have to then, I guess, make an assumption that these 80% of kids who didn't went to the ED because they called somebody, that they did okay at the end of the day. You know, it's... I mean, they're kids, you know. It's probably fine, but it is an assumption. It is asking us to take a pretty big leap of faith. So, you know, they're not trying to say this is like hard-hitting research or something. They say this is a QI project we did and we wanted to write it up. I do think it does introduce this concept nicely. You know, I mean, COVID made this on the forefront of everybody's brain. Hey, there's some stuff we could do via telehealth or phone calls yeah. that we used to do in the office. And so this data is old. This is, you know, pre-COVID, but I think it's relevant, has gained a lot of value in the last two years, which is probably why this paper was published, because it's sort of on topic for what a lot of us are thinking about. And I think what your next paper is going to talk about a little bit too. Editor's commentary. In this QI effort turned publication, the authors report a dramatic, maybe overly dramatic, decrease in ED visits and unscheduled care among Medicare-enrolled children with a suite of three office hours-based interventions to promote a phone-first strategy. It is not known how expensive it would be to set up and run the program or the impact on outcomes. From an ED perspective, efforts like this are great particularly part two of their suite where the primary doctor reached out to patients directly after an ED visit to find out why they didn't call them first, if they can help arrange follow-up and coordinate care. That is something I can get behind. Abstract number 20, association of a callback program with emergency department revisit rates among patients seeking emergency care by Fruhan et al. and JAMA Network Open. I really love this idea and I applaud the authors for the study. I'm just not 100% sure what to make of it at this time. So the idea is that patients get discharged from the ED, hopefully, and often are thoroughly confused about what the next steps are in their treatment plan. And that has to do with like, what are my return precautions? What are the follow-up recommendations? What are the medication adjustments? And there's a lot of good reasons for it. It's not just people are ignorant or whatever. As we know, patients they may be actually confused. They may have gotten medications that make them sleepy or confused. And often they're sick and being discharged in the middle of the night, which makes it very difficult to understand this big stack of papers that they're given. Yeah. And we've, we've covered papers about this, about yeah. like different uh, domains of understanding their discharge instructions. And it's something like 80% of patients have some misunderstanding of at least one of those critical domains in Absolutely. their discharge. So. Absolutely. So could some form of a post-ED callback system reach patients and round out the information they need and ultimately improve satisfaction with their care or potentially reduce return visits to the ED. So if we did that, could we help? The authors here report on a pilot project of an automated ED callback system that was deployed over a 10-week period at San Francisco General Hospital. At least I think it was at San Francisco General Hospital. 
The way it worked was that patients who had a phone number obtained at registration and who were discharged or left AMA, so anybody who's left, got an automated phone call 48 hours post-leaving to that registration phone number. So they didn't say, hey, we're going to call you back or anything like that. It was just the number that gets put into the registration piece. As part of the automated call, they were asked if they had questions about their medications, discharge instructions, or follow-up planned, and if they wanted a call back from a provider. And this is one of those like automated menus. They're like, do you want a call back from a provider? Press one, you know, that kind of thing. That's what the system was like. So it wasn't personalized, no. the call. The call was just a general, well, pick a number if you need anything, otherwise hang up and this call's over. Yeah, and, and that is, it is, so it's- Well, that makes it scalable, it practical. Makes it it makes it scalable for sure. Now, if you wanted a call back, they then attempted to call back those people who hit one on that button or whatever it was. Now, the way this rolled out is the automated program, for some reason, was only active certain days of the week which were apparently more or less at random. And I I don't know why that is the case. That's just what they said it was. So this creates a sort of pseudo-randomized pragmatic trial, right? The people who were discharged on days when this thing was active got the call. The people who were discharged on days where it was not active did not get the call. There were a lot of analyses performed with a primary outcome of a return ED visit within seven days. A 14-day post-ED satisfaction survey was also given to all the patients, also via an automated telephone call. Press 2 if you were completely satisfied with your ED visit, that kind of thing. During the study period, 11,000 people were discharged, of whom about 8,000 had a telephone number. So that represents the study you know, cohort population. Uh, d- yeah, the denominator. Right, exactly. The mean age was 40, 55% male, 40% Hispanic, 20% black. Based on the availability of the service, 3,000 out of those 8,000 patients received a callback attempt. Of those, only 32% answered the phone. So two-thirds, they tried calling them, no one ever answered. And of them, 759 answered the question of whether they wanted to speak with a provider. Only 328, so a third of the ones, so it's like a third of a third of a third, actually said they wanted a callback, right? And then what it was kind of interesting, and they don't really report this exactly, but it looks like after that, that was the first question they asked. They're like, hello, are you here? 900 people answered that question. Then they said, would you like a callback? And 700 people answered that or, or like were present for that call. And a third of them said that they would want one. After that, they asked them, how well did you understand your discharge instructions? How well did you understand your return percussion? Basically, nobody stayed on the call for that. That got down to like only 200 people were still on the call, so, which kind of makes sense, especially if your answer is, I don't want to call back. You'd probably be like, I don't want to call back. I don't want to talk to you anymore. So we're, we're good. So that's sort of how that shook out. Now, in terms of the primary outcome, the seven-day bounce back rate was statistically lower in the callback group, 7.6% compared to the group that did not get a callback, which was 10%. It's actually a remarkably big effect size, given that most people did not even pick up the phone. Patient satisfaction was largely same-same across the groups, though there might be a small, non-significant trend towards improvement in the automated callback group. Unfortunately, the satisfaction sort of numbers are dramatically affected by the fact that hardly anybody actually did that 14-day you know, thing. I think it was like 20% of the people 
actually completed the satisfaction survey. I want to be absolutely clear here. I love this idea. But for me, these results are really mixed at best. Most people could not be reached. Most people who were reached did not complete the questionnaire of like, did you understand stuff? Patient satisfaction was not affected, but the bounce back rates maybe were at a clip that seems too high to be true, to be honest. I did some back of the envelope calculations and show that the bounce back rate for patients who could not be reached, they tried to reach them, but they couldn't be reached was 8%. And that's compared to 10% of the people who they never even tried to reach. And that's a statistically significant difference. So, you know, it seems like something happened in the randomization process that sort of favored the group where there was an attempt and it just didn't really do much. So, you know, I don't know what to make of that. Also, there's just sort of a basic question on why on earth the callback would be useful for someone with an ankle sprain, right? It's honestly, that's the kind of thing that's kind of a waste of everybody's time. Conversely, I could see it being really useful for someone being, who was maybe evaluated for a headache, but didn't get a head scan and they had all sorts of questions. Or abdominal about, pain. Whatever, or, any number of things. Or better yet, somebody who had an incidental finding, they're like, wait, so you did a head scan and you found sort of a thing in there, but I'm, I don't know what, but it doesn't, it's not affecting my headache, but I need to, fall, you know, that could be very confusing information. So I think that that's where the future of this is heading from an emergency department perspective identifying the cohort of patients in whom this is likely to help, right? And then sort of targeting the intervention towards that group. I just don't think that we need to do it for all comers in general. I love the idea. I love the study concept. I'm thankful for the, that the authors went through the efforts of publishing this. And I hope that the sort of next studies on this try to add some specificity over, you know, which kind of patients really need it so that you can target actually trying to reach them as opposed to casting a really wide net, but only reaching a very small fraction of those patients who may or may not be the ones that are at risk for having some complication from poor understanding of their follow-up instructions. Editor's commentary. This study explores the brilliant idea of performing some type of automated post-ED follow-up call. The results show such an automated system has relatively low chance of reaching the majority of patients but despite this, may have some beneficial effects in terms of patient satisfaction and bounce-back prevention. At this point, more work is needed to identify patient populations most likely to benefit from this type of system before we can endorse a widespread deployment. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the September EMA Ultra Summary. As always, I'm Jenny Beck Esme, and I am joined by the fantastic Jess Monis. Hello, Jess. Hi, Jenny. Thank you. It is a big week for Jess, everybody. I know you are all on the edge of your seat wondering what's happening with Jess. So, Jess, what's happening this week? Okay, well, first of all, I got some good news. I had a repeat MAMA ultrasound and MRI, which showed no evidence of disease. So, yeah, chemo killed the cancer. So that was awesome to hear that. I feel like I needed that. And yeah, so this coming week, I'm having surgery. So that's the next step. So exciting. This is a big, this is a big week for you. 
It is September in EMA land, but it is July in recording land. And so it's a big month for like everybody as a new residents are starting and everything. So there's a lot going on. I think I think we should just dive into some papers to focus, yeah? Yeah. All right. Let's do it. Let's do it. Paper number one. Effect of fluid bolus administration on cardiovascular collapse among critically ill patients undergoing tracheal intubation, a randomized clinical trial. This is a multi-center, unblinded, pragmatic RCT of roughly 1,000 patients from 11 different ICUs across the U.S., comparing a 500cc fluid bolus with no fluid bolus in the peri-intubation period. They included adults getting RSI who were also receiving either BVM or non-invasive ventilation, and they excluded any patient who could not wait for randomization or who had a contraindication to receiving fluids. The primary outcome of interest was cardiovascular collapse, and this was a composite outcome including all the things that you would think of for CV collapse, so needing pressors, low blood pressure, cardiac arrest, all that stuff. This occurred, the cardiovascular collapse occurred in 21% of the fluid group versus 18.2% of the no fluid group. So no real difference there. Unfortunately, though, the study doesn't really apply to most of our patient population for a couple of reasons. First, it's an ICU study, not an ED study. So there might just be some differences right there. Their intubation protocols and everything could be a little bit different. But also, the average blood pressure for these patients was in the 120 systolic, and patients were excluded if the intubation couldn't wait for randomization, i.e. emergent or crash tubes. So the study just can't really be applied to that many of the tubes that we're doing in the ED. All right. So we're basically just going to keep doing what we're doing for now. Keep doing what you're doing for now, I think. Yeah. All right. Paper number two. Rapid exclusion of acute myocardial injury and infarction with a single high-sensitivity cardiac T in the emergency department, a multi-center United States evaluation. There is good European data to support the use of a single high-sensitivity troponin below 5 nanograms per liter to exclude an acute MI. In the U.S., the FDA doesn't let us report under 6, so is 6 good enough? Out of 12,000 patients with serial high-sensitivity troponins, only 1.2% developed an MI for a negative predictive value of 98.8% and a sensitivity of 99.6%. But when combined with a non-ischemic ECG, the negative predictive value jumps to 100%. Not too bad. We don't know how long these patients were having chest pain for, so I think it's reasonable to proceed with some caution. If a patient rolls in 10 minutes after it starts, get a repeat trope. I think that sounds reasonable. I mean, there's very little in medicine that gets to 100%, right? (laughs) Right. (laughs) Paper number three, Atomidate versus Ketamine for Emergency Endotracheal Intubation, a Randomized Clinical Trial. This is a prospective randomized non-blinded trial from a single center. Roughly 800 patients being cared for by the anesthesiology airway team were randomized to receive either Atomidate 0.2 to 0.3 mg per kg IV or Ketamine 1 to 2 mg per kg IV for their emergent RSI. They wanted to see if there was any difference in survival at 7 days. They found a statistically significant difference in that survival with Ketamine performing better, but the difference disappeared by 28 days and there was no difference in other things like ICU length of stay, duration of mechanical ventilation, or vasopressor use. Their analysis went on to look at a bunch of other variables that were similar between the two agents, but they did find a few differences, 
all of which look worse for ketamine, including the need for push-dose pressors, post-induction CPR, and post-induction cardiovascular collapse. There's definitely some selection bias at play here as around 1,000 patients, so more than even were included, 1,000 patients were excluded because of an agent preference by the intubating clinician. It's hard to really know what to make of this data as seven-day survival isn't a super meaningful outcome and they don't report on neurologically intact survival. I would definitely need a much larger study to be convinced. Yeah, I totally agree. Like, unless we know, you know, I mean, are, are these people walking out, right? Like we say survival, right. but again, like, what does that mean? What does you that know? mean? And so I think it's really hard to assess. All right, paper number four. Assessment of awake-prone positioning in hospitalized adults with COVID-19, a non-randomized control trial. Early in the pandemic, we found that proning with COVID could improve hypoxemia. That may be fine transiently, but does it improve clinical outcomes? The 500 COVID-positive patients with O2 requirements in the study were assigned either prone positioning or usual care. Two-thirds were on nasal cannula and about a quarter on high flow, so mostly patients with mild to moderate respiratory difficulty. Interestingly, on day five, the odds of having a worse outcome were about one and a half times more in the prone group. That being said, by day 14, there was no difference. The bottom line here is that awake prone positioning may appear helpful in the moment, but does not pan out in the long run. Interesting. You know, as I said, we're recording in July and... We are in the midst of another COVID surge across the United States, despite beautiful weather and everyone being outside. And I actually had a very sick COVID patient recently, which I hadn't seen in a long time. You know, that awake hypoxic to the 50s look. It was kind of crazy. Wow. Paper number five, analgesic and anxiolytic effects of virtual reality during minor procedures in an emergency department, a randomized controlled study. I really like the concept here. They looked at adults getting suturing, wound explorations, casting, joint reductions, thoracotomies, paracentesis, or an ABG, painful ABG, and compared their pain and anxiety scores while they received distraction techniques, either via a 3D virtual reality headset or a 2D laptop screen. The distraction experience that was provided was a Zen garden with some kind of breathing exercise stuff. The idea being that the more immersive the experience, the more distraction that will be provided, and thus you might get better anxiolysis and analgesia. That's not what they found. There was no difference in scores between the two groups. But as Sanjay points out, the pain scores weren't that high to begin with. So perhaps an effect would have been seen if the initial scores had been higher, or maybe even if the experience could have been personalized, allowing the patient to choose their experience rather than having only this Zen garden option. Maybe a Zen garden isn't so Zen for everybody. Maybe we'll get some more on this topic in the near future. Okay. Paper number six. Comparison of three intraosseous access devices for resuscitation of term neonates, a randomized simulation study. This study compared the EZIO to the NEO and the Jamshidi needle in a neonatal bone model. Most of us are familiar with the first, but I had to look up the other two. The NEO infant is a manual device with a step needle that is supposed to prevent overpenetration and includes a fixation dressing to prevent dislodgement. The Jamshidi is basically a needle with a T-handle that looks like a corkscrew. There was about a 50% one-attempt success rate with the EZIO, 
compared to roughly 80% with the other two. And true to its name, clinicians found the EZIO easier to use. Over half of the failed attempts where the EZIO were due to overinsertion, compared to 25% with the others. Most of us don't have a choice about which IO we get to use, but it's good to know that the EZIO has a tendency to pop through the other side of the bone so we can adjust our force accordingly. That's really good to know because we don't do these that often, right? And so you need to kind of have that in the back of your mind. You don't have to use a lot of force. It really is easy. It it is easy. (laughs) It's called easy for a reason. So kind of back off on the force and let the device do the work, right? Yep. Paper number seven, a retrospective evaluation of phenobarbital versus benzodiazepines for treatment of alcohol withdrawal in a regional Canadian emergency department. This is a retrospective review of almost 200 cases of alcohol withdrawal with monotherapy either being phenobarb or a benzo. The baseline characteristics between the two groups were similar, but there were more patients with moderate to severe withdrawal that were placed into the phenobarb group. So take that for what it's worth. They looked at the ED length of stay and found it to be similar between the two groups, as well as the rate of hospitalization, but that they found to be much lower in the phenobarb group. After their logistical regression, they found that patients in the phenobarb group were 71.3% less likely to be admitted. Now, I find this interesting because I don't know how the practice pattern is where you work, Jess, but generally when we're moving to kind of the IV type of agents for alcohol withdrawal, the phenobarbs or the IV benzos, those patients are almost always getting admitted where I practice. <laughs> you know, I, was, I was like, oh, Canada. No. <laughs> Canada, just IV phenobarb and out the door. <laughs> right. It's like, oh, just give me some I mean, IV phenobarb. We send some, you know, Librium, a couple, you know, dose of Librium and out the door. That happens a lot. But Absolutely. IV doesn't really happen a lot where I work. So anyway, that's interesting. It's also a pretty small study with only 26 total admissions, but it is just a good reminder that phenobarb is a good option for alcohol withdrawal and may perhaps encourage you to become more familiar with it in the event that you are not. Absolutely. And you know, Aaron, my husband, he used to do tox primarily. And -hmm. whenever he was called for alcohol withdrawal, he'd come down, he'd just give like a stick of phenobarb. You know, that was like, they did that. And it's true, you just got to become familiar with it in your practice. And you have to get your nurses familiar with it. So it's kind of thing where, you know, the department probably should have a protocol so everybody's on board with how to use phenobarb because we get used to using these higher and higher, higher doses of benzos, but then you try and throw a phenobarb in and the nurse has never given it and everyone's anxious. So a protocol would certainly help. Absolutely. Paper eight, is headache during pregnancy a higher risk for serious secondary headache cause? A head study report. This study examined a cohort of 117 pregnant patients, which were part of a larger study on headaches. While six of them had a serious cause for their headache identified, there was no difference in the proportion of serious causes between the pregnant and non-pregnant group. The two pregnant patients with subarachnoid hemorrhage both had thunderclap worse headaches of life with vomiting, the one with idiopathic intracranial hypertension had visual disturbances, and the one with an intracranial hemorrhage had a severe headache with vomiting. These patients all came with the red flags we are used to, which is reassuring. There were also two with preeclampsia, so in addition to the usual, make sure to look out for pregnancy-specific causes as well. Okay. Paper number nine, prevalence of intracranial hemorrhage amongst patients presenting with out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, a systematic review and meta-analysis. 
Ooh, a Surma. Oh, you stole it. I was going to use it. <laughs> okay, <laughs> listeners, if you, are, if you are new to EMA or if you don't remember, Jess has coined this term, Surma, for systematic review and meta-analysis, and I was going to sneak it in. <laughs> she got there before me. So, okay. Previous literature has the incidence of ICH in patients with non-traumatic out-of-hospital cardiac arrest somewhere between 0.8% and 24%. Wild. Who knows? That's a huge range. These authors were hoping to narrow that down with a surma. <laughs> Nailed it. <laughs> Nailed it. They included 23 papers, which totaled over almost 55,000 patients. They found that the overall intracranial hemorrhage prevalence was 4.28%, and among patients with a documented ROSC, it was about 4.14%. This is actually a kind of high percentage and would suggest we perhaps should be scanning more of these patients. But Sanjay points this out in the longer discussion. There is a kind of big problem here. Most of the included studies were retrospective studies that included patients with an out-of-hospital cardiac arrest who also happened to get a CT. But since we don't routinely CT all of these patients, these were patients in whom the doctors had some reason to suspect a bleed and scan the head. So that 4% is not really the rate of intracranial hemorrhage among all out-of-hospital cardiac arrest patients. Rather, it's the rate in patients in whom it was suspected that there might be an intracranial hemorrhage. So uh, I don't really know what to make of that number. It's not great. If you're suspecting that there could be something in the brain, sure, scan the brain. But I don't know that this means we should be doing it on everybody. Yeah, absolutely not. Totally agree, right? Totally separate questions. It's like, if you are worried about something, then do something about it. Right. But it doesn't mean we need to do it for everyone. Right. Absolutely. And it's a resource-intensive process to get a head CT on a patient who's post-ROSC, right? This is an intubated patient. You have to have a respiratory therapist. You have to bring the vent. It's like a whole thing with multiple nurses to transport that patient. So to do this just on everybody probably is not really going to move the needle much. Absolutely. Paper 10. Comparison of the therapeutic efficacy of topical tranexamic acid, epinephrine, and lidocaine in stopping bleeding in non-traumatic epistaxis, a prospective randomized double-blind trial. We have reviewed many papers looking at TXA and epistaxis. The most robust one was the NOPAC trial from last year, which showed no benefit. So let's look at this one. It's a small study out of Turkey with about 100 patients that looked at bleeding stop times. They found no difference between topical TXA, epinephrine, or lidocaine. One problem is that they excluded a ton of patients, including those with anticoagulation or hypertension, so basically all the patients we would worry about. Regardless, this is just another paper adding a strike against TXA and nosebleeds. Ugh, poor TXA. It just cannot catch a break. <laughs> right. Paper number 11, Success Rate of Anterior Shoulder Dislocation Reduction by Emergency Physicians, a Retrospective Cohort Study. So like I said at the beginning, and maybe again in the middle, I don't know, it's July in recording land. New interns have arrived and then residents have all moved up a level to a new role. So I had a shift the other night with a resident who had never successfully reduced a shoulder. And I remember that feeling of like a procedure that's just kind of this monkey on your back. For me, it was LPs. I went my entire intern year without ever successfully LPing a patient despite poking, 
poking some of them. <laughs> so anyway, I had a shoulder with this resident the other day and she got it on the first try and it was so much fun. It was just really fun. Nice. Anyway, that's not the point. This is a retrospective chart review of around 250 patients with anterior shoulder dislocations in which the authors essentially described their experiences with shoulder dislocations over a period of 15 years. They found that the ED providers successfully reduced the shoulders 92.2% of the time. Of the 19 shoulders the ED doc couldn't reduce, 17 were reduced in the ED by ortho, and two went to the operating room. Around 11% of patients received an IV analgesic, 13% a sedative, and 56% had an intraarticular injection, and a full quarter of patients received absolutely nothing at all. More details on techniques that were most successful would have been nice, but this is overall pretty reassuring. We do a pretty darn good job of these overall. I think we do. Yeah. You know, in fact, in residency, I got the uh, reputation as the shoulder whisperer. Oh, my. And, um, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's carried through. So, you know, I'm glad excellent, to say. Excellent, excellent. But I had the same struggles with the LP early on. So, yeah. So, shoulder whisperer, what is your um, technique of choice? What's your first choice? So, I mean, so I do, you know, I just do like external rotation, yeah, uh -huh. you know, and like scapular manipulation abdu and abduction. And I, I, you know, I do it with like relaxation techniques. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So that's why they said like shoulder whisper, because I would whisper to the patient. I'd be like, okay, now take a deep breath in and exhale and relax. Oh my God, I love <laughs> so, it. So we should pair your shoulder whispering with the VR and see if we could just, you know, perfect <laughs> this technique. Right. All right. Sounds good. <laughs> you are on a beach. <laughs> Paper 12. Albuterol budesonide fixed dose combination rescue inhaler for asthma. Beta agonists have been the mainstay of rescue medication for asthmatics forever. The problem is that it does not address the underlying inflammation, which is why these authors looked at adding in an inhaled corticosteroid to the mix. In this double-blind RCT, they found that albuterol plus budesonide was superior to albuterol alone in patients with uncontrolled asthma. The risk of a severe asthma exacerbation was about 25% less in the combination group. As of 2019, the Global Initiative for Asthma recommends adding in an inhaled corticosteroid to short-acting beta agonists as a reliever, and there is enough data out there to suggest that we consider doing this from the ED as well. Paper 13, Intravenous Vitamin C in Adults with Sepsis in the Intensive Care Unit. This is a randomized placebo-controlled trial looking at high-dose vitamin C on almost 900 adult patients with proven or suspected infection who are on pressors, so sick infected patients, sepsis. Their primary composite outcome was death or persistent organ dysfunction at 28 days. They found this in 44.5% of the vitamin C group and 38.5% of the control group, which was statistically significant. So not only was vitamin C not helpful, it seems like it was actually harmful. These vitamin C trials are kind of stacking up here. So poor TXA, poor vitamin C, they can all just go to the medication <laughs> graveyard. For more on this, there's some previous MRAP segments you can listen to. Back in 2017, in August, there was the critical care mailbag on vitamin C for sepsis. And then in January 2020, you know, the last two years haven't really meant anything. Breaking news section, there was a vitamins trial kind of covering some more on these trials. All right, paper 14. 
Indexinate Alpha Effectiveness and Safety versus four-factor prothrombin complex concentrate in intracranial hemorrhage while on apixaban or rivaroxaban, a single-center retrospective matched cohort analysis. This was a very small study with only 52 patients, which found comparable rates of hemostasis between the groups. 27% had thrombotic events within 14 days with indexinate alpha, compared to 12% with PCCs, but this was not statistically significant. The authors conclude no difference in efficacy or safety, but there were many problems here, including poor chart review methods, which Mike discusses in his summary in greater detail. Indexinate alpha binds and sequesters factor 10A inhibitors, whereas PCCs contain clotting factors but are not specific to 10A. Before we disregard indexinate alpha, we need a good RCT to truly assess the comparison. Paper 15, Ability of Pain Scoring Scales to Differentiate Between Patients Desiring Analgesia and Those Who Do Not in the Emergency Department. This is a large retrospective cohort study that wants to see if that numerical pain score that we use really can predict whether a patient is going to want analgesia. They looked at patients who had an initial non-zero pain score in their medical record, as well as this other feature that they had in their medical record, which was a yes or no field that indicated whether the patient wanted analgesia. Do they want it? Yes or no? They found that in general, the higher the pain score, the higher the percentage of patients who wanted analgesia. Makes sense. But they do note that on the extremes of the scores, it's not necessarily obvious, with about a fifth of the patients in the mild self-reported pain score section still wanting pain meds, and about a third, more than I would expect, of patients in the severe pain category who did not want analgesia. This yes-no, does the patient want analgesia question could have been checked by the provider or the nurse, I don't really know, and that could definitely have introduced a source of bias. But it should remind us not to just assume based on the number that you know what the patient wants. Just ask them directly, do you want some pain medication? I find this definitely saves time because occasionally I'm just assuming the patient's gonna want a med that they don't actually want and this wastes the nurse's time and it sometimes forces the nurse to waste the medications. So just ask. Yeah, I totally agree. I hate the pain score. I, I, I really hate it. You know, the question like, would you like something for pain? Fantastic question. You know, what's your pain? It's like the patient's like 10. I'm like, well, you know, if a 10 is being stabbed with knives and lit on fire, you know, then what are you now? And they're right. like, a 10. I'm like, so if somebody just came in and started stabbing you and lit you on fire, you wouldn't even scream because you're like, that's where you're, I am You're now. already there. Yeah. It's like, I can't. All right. Paper 16. Suicidal ideation and sobriety. Should acute alcohol intoxication be taken into account for psychiatric evaluation? When an intoxicated patient presents with suicidal ideation, we often wait until they sober before doing a behavioral health assessment. So how many of these patients end up changing their mind? In this study, they compared suicidal patients with a blood alcohol level greater than 80 to those without a positive level. They found that around two-thirds of intoxicated patients changed their mind when sober, compared to about a third in the control group. Intuitively, this makes sense. Wait until someone is clinically sober, then assess them. So we'll keep doing what we do. I love a paper that just, you know, lets me keep doing what I'm doing. <laughs> but I mean, it's so funny, right? It's like you have an intoxicated patient. You're going to be like, Sir, sir, you know, like, you know. <laughs> Answer these really important questions right now. Right, so look at me, sir. 
Paper number 17, antibiotic use and vaccine antibody levels. I love this. I think this is really fascinating in kind of a basic science way. So vaccines have variable efficacy, with some kids producing a robust antibody response and some others not. And why this happens is almost certainly multifactorial. And one possibility is the child's own gut microbiome. So the authors here thought that if antibiotics change the gut flora, are they maybe changing the vaccine response? They conducted a retrospective unplanned secondary analysis of around 500 kids who were enrolled in a different study about respiratory infections. And because of this other study, they were just getting routine blood draws. During this study period, some of those kids were prescribed antibiotics, most commonly amoxicillin, ceftonir, augmentin, and ceftriaxone, and some of the kids were just not given antibiotics. They found vaccine-induced antibody levels to several of the DTaP and pneumococcal conjugate vaccine antigens were lower in kids who got antibiotics. And they found a higher frequency of vaccine-induced antibodies that were below the protective levels, the levels we really want, in the children who were given antibiotics. They went on to show that the more antibiotics that were given, so more rounds, longer courses, broader spectrum, they went on to show that the more antibiotics that were given, more rounds, longer courses, broader spectrum, the worse it was. Now, the elephant in the room is that it's possible that the kids who were given antibiotics were just sicker kids, and it's because of this that they produced a poorer vaccine response. Nevertheless, I would add this to the laundry list of reasons to be judicious in your antibiotic prescribing. Makes sense. Paper 18, Pragmatic Clinical Trial Design in Emergency Medicine, Study Considerations and Design Types. Explanatory research is typically highly controlled with strict inclusion criteria, which is not always generalizable. So in comes pragmatic clinical trials. These correlate the treatment effect on outcomes in real-world settings. The authors discuss key considerations for these type of studies and go over the Pragmatic Explanatory Continuum Indicator Summary, which is a tool to help trialists explore the pragmatic or explanatory nature of their study and help shape the design. If you are interested in trial design, then this paper is for you. Paper number 19. Office phone-first systems reduce emergency department urgent care utilization by Medicaid-enrolled children. Phone-based triage systems have been shown to reduce ED visits in children with commercial insurance, but according to these authors, this hasn't really been studied in children with Medicaid. These children have higher ED utilization overall, and perhaps they have worse medical care as a result, getting a lot of their care in this really fragmented way. So this was a QI-type project where they implemented three of what they called phone-first services, including one, an enhanced office hours telephone triage and advice with some available same-day appointments, two, follow-up calls to parents of children who referred themselves to the ED or the urgent care, and three, parent education to the phone or the office for advice prior to seeking acute care. So just kind of teaching the parents how to call first. So they implemented these three different services at three different pediatric practices and gave the results separately. But cutting to the chase, they all seem to really work, with the ED utilization rate dropping by 24 to 80%. They included a qualitative portion where it seems that the vast majority of the patients were satisfied with these services, 
as well as a cost analysis piece that estimated an annual savings of $6.8 billion in the United States. Now, a couple of things are missing. They don't comment on the cost of running this program, but I guess as long as it's less than $6.8 billion, it's a good thing. They also don't comment on any health outcomes, so we just kind of have to assume that keeping all these kids out of the ED is good for them. I, for one, am in favor of really any system that adds to the general helping of our families out there trying to coordinate their care in what is really a fragmented and crazy healthcare system. So this sounds promising to me. Yeah, it sounds like a great program. You know, if we can help keep people out of the emergency department, if they don't need to be there, then that's a wonderful thing. Yeah. And as Sanjay points out, one of these interventions was a call from the pediatrics clinic to anybody who went to the ER. Well, that's great. If, you know, we don't have to be worried about making sure that these patients are getting the correct follow-up, if somehow it automatically triggers their pediatrician to call them the next day or in the next two days. I love that. Yeah. Integrated health systems. Yeah. That's, yep. Paper 20. Association of a Callback Program with Emergency Department Revisit Rates Among Patients Seeking Emergency Care. Patients in this study received a pre-recorded automated call two days after discharge. They were asked a series of questions about the discharge instructions, medication, and follow-up plan, as well as if they wanted a callback from a provider. Of the 3,000 patients that answered the call, only 230 made it to the end. The authors claim that rates of ED return were less in the callback group, but it's actually quite similar to the cohort of patients that were called but not reached. What did I take away from this paper? If you are going to attempt something like this, make your script succinct. This automated call was long and wordy, and most didn't stick around to the end. And that wraps up another month of the amazing, outstanding ultra summary <laughs> with Jess Monas and Jenny Beck as well. <laughs> Until next time. Until next time. It's, it's time to talk a little natty. Talk a little natty with Ken Milne. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the September episode of Time to Talk a Little Nerdy. We're shaking things up. We're mixing it up this month. Instead of E.M. Swami, we have my BFF. Yes, that's my best friend forever, Dr. Chris Carpenter. Welcome to the show, Chris. Hey, Kent. I'm proud to call myself a nerd and I'm really honored to be on MRAP with you. Well, I wanted to have you on the show to talk about guidelines and specifically the new amazing GRACE guidelines. And they've come out of the Society for Academic Emergency Medicine, or SAEM. But before we dive into the specifics, what are your general thoughts on guidelines? Do you like guidelines? Do you not like guidelines? Where are you on the spectrum of guidelines? You're talking clinical practice guidelines, right? Are there other guidelines? Well, for sure. There, there's publishing guidelines like STARI and STARD and CONSORT. Okay, so I'm just talking about clinical practice guidelines. Got it. Yeah. Well, yes, I love them. I love guidelines. Medicine is both an art and a science. Physicians must somehow combine intuition, current state knowledge, priorities, and their style through a filter of their own cognitive biases to formulate and communicate diagnostic, prognostic, and treatment plans on a patient-by-patient basis. You know, Ken, that on this evidence-based medicine hierarchy of evidence, this pyramid, clinical practice guidelines represent the top 
a synthesis of contemporary clinical research through the filter of, of biases and physician assessment of relevance and practicality. Way back in 1990, ASAP launched clinical policies, but made a very conscious decision not to call them guidelines, which they felt were just too restrictive, that term guidelines. Other than CAPE, the Canadian Association of Emergency Physicians, which has five clinical practice guidelines since 1996, organized medicine, emergency medicine has not really created clinical practice guidelines until SAM launched GRACE in 2020. Well, I often say guidelines, they should guide our care, but they shouldn't dictate our care. And it fits in the EBM framework of those three pillars. There's the literature, which again should guide and inform our care, but we still need to use our good clinical judgment and importantly, ask the patients, hey, what do you value? What do you prefer? But there are lots and lots of guidelines that have been published over the years. Why are you guys interested in contributing to this large literature base? Aren't you worried that you'll just be adding more noise to a very noisy environment with so many guidelines out there? There are not lots and lots of guidelines published by emergency physicians for emergency physicians. ASAP, again, has clinical policies and only has 20 of those, some of which date back a decade. For full disclosure, I am a proud member of the ASAP Clinical Policy Committee, and I value the excellent work of that long-standing committee. Like I said before, CAPE has five clinical practice guidelines, two for AFib, one each for ankle and knee injuries, and another for vasopressor management. Anyone who's worked more than two hours in an ED understands that we provide care for many more conditions that are covered by those ASAP policies and CAPE clinical practice guidelines. Other organizations, like you're alluding to, the American Heart Association is one, do create clinical practice guidelines, but these generally are not from the perspective of emergency physicians. Philosophically, I believe that emergency physicians need to create clinical practice guidelines for emergency physicians because we have the breadth of firsthand experience with these scenarios in patient populations. Well, I can confirm that when I'm working a shift, I do see more clinical situations than AFib and ankles and knees. Yes. So do I. We have more of a breadth of care. Anyways, uh, we know that most guidelines are not based on high-level evidence. And as an example, to support my position, there was a study published in JAMA 2009, and they looked at the ACC AHA guidelines from 1984 up to 2008. So then they published this in 2009. And there were 53 guidelines giving over 7,000 recommendations. I'm sure you know them all, Chris, because you're so smart. Yeah, right. But only 11% were level A recommendations, with 39% being level B and 50%, half of them being level C recommendations. And 10 years later, Fanaroff published in JAMA that most guidelines were still not level A. In fact, only 9% were level A recommendations. Of course, clinical practice guidelines are completely dependent on the quantity and quality of pertinent research. So the degree of certainty represented in level A versus level B versus level C is not a reflection of problematic clinical practice guidelines. Instead, this reality reflects the complexity of research and the time and effort required to accrue medical knowledge. Well, we've brought up the AHA, the American Heart Association, and they have this program with a mantra, get with the guidelines. And I'm always wondering, how much do I need to get with the guidelines? How concordant do I have to be? I know it's not 0% because they want me to get with the guidelines, but I'm also sure that it's not 100% of the time. And no one seems to be able to tell me how closely we should follow the guidelines. 
and what should happen when a physician doesn't follow the guidelines. Now, you're the smartest person I know, Chris. Do you have an answer for me? I'm sorry to disappoint you, Ken. I'm not sure there is a correct answer to this question. Perhaps, perhaps, if a level A recommendation exists that is written by a representative set of physicians, all perspectives included, the pros and the cons, and aligns with the majority of patients' priorities, if that recommendation is widely feasible and cost-effective, maybe then get what the guidelines would be an appropriate mantra. But not all guidelines are created equally, and there are different organizations that look at the same literature and come up with different interpretations and recommendations. Just look at the TPA for stroke guidelines. The AHA gives an A recommendation for using TPA up to 4.5 hours last seen well. Now, in contrast, the ASEP policy, yes, I recognize it's not a guideline, but it only gives B recommendations, and it says in under three hours, TPA should be offered and may be given, and then if you get out over three hours, up to four and a half hours, they say it may be offered and may be given. Why do you think there's a difference between these two organizations? Well, thanks for noticing and noting that ASEP does not create clinical practice guidelines, but clinical policies, and that there's a difference between these two recommendations. One difference is that clinical policies are meant to convey more of a suggestion than a dictate about best practice. Back in 1982, there was nine specialty societies creating clinical practice guidelines that 10 years later, by 1992, had increased to 45. Initially, the drivers of this ramp up in clinical practice guidelines were catalyzed around the formation of AHRQ in 1989 and two Institute of Medicine reports that indicated a potential for cost savings if guidelines were to be created. Since the AHA clinical practice guideline and the ASAP clinical policy are created for separate purposes, a guideline versus a clinical policy, and by different special societies with different patient populations and using different approaches to finding, appraising, and synthesizing the evidence, there shouldn't really be a surprise when different recommendations or different strength of recommendations result at the end. Well, you brought up the Institute of Medicine. And there are guidelines for guideline writers. And the Institute of Medicine put out a document called Clinical Practice Guidelines We Can Trust. And in that guideline, they talk about minimizing committee writers, mitigating conflicts of interest, and that the chair or co-chairs of those committees should not be the person with conflicts of interest. Are you familiar with that publication from 2011? And do you have any thoughts about those guidelines? Because they do talk more than just about conflicts of interest. Oh, for sure. That was on the New York Times bestseller list, right? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, the the IOM report, it actually included eight specific recommendations for creating trustworthy guidelines. And the management of conflict of interest, as you point out, I think it's probably the most important. It's still underdeveloped component of clinical practice guideline development, although the Guidelines International Network, this body that helps oversee guideline development across different organizations, They provide an increasing array of tools and best practices for improving the transparency of guideline development, including conflict of interest reporting. The IOM recommendation for conflict of interest management are fairly explicit, and they seem logical. What is lacking, in my opinion, is proof of concept that these IOM recommendations are associated with the creation of guidelines that more effectively improve patient outcomes or expedite the creation of practice guidelines. The other question that I have that the IOM somehow continues to ignore or elude is how they expect or recommend that clinical practice guidelines be funded. If any of the listeners are curious, the other seven recommendations from the IOM about how to improve the quality, the transparency of guidelines to make them more trustworthy include establishing transparency, creating a balanced and multidisciplinary writing team, performing systematic reviews prior to the guideline, 
explicit evidence appraisal and strength of evidence ratings, standardized articulation of recommendations, external review by relevant clinical stakeholders and patient organizations, and updates as required based upon the evolution of the evidence. Well, that's enough banter about guidelines in general. Let's focus now on these GRACE guidelines. What does GRACE actually stand for? It stands for Guidelines for Reasonable and Appropriate Care in the Emergency Department. Oh, I like that. Reasonable and appropriate care. And it's talking about where we work in the emergency department. With all these other guidelines, what was the rationale of SAEM putting together their own guidelines? Well, it wasn't my idea. There's a history here. Following the 2007 Academic Emergency Medicine Consensus Conference on the topic of knowledge translation, implementation scientists realized that guidelines could serve as an accelerant to applying research knowledge to bedside practice. In 2010, SAM opinion leaders noted that increased participation by SAM in the creation, endorsement, and maintenance of guidelines would be a value added to the membership of our organization. The next steps of formulating the how of guidelines and the why took a decade. GRACE differs from ASAP clinical policies because, number one, GRACE is a clinical practice guideline, not a clinical policy. Number two, GRACE adheres to methods used by hundreds of organizations worldwide to create guidelines called GRADE. And in addition, unlike other organizations like AHA, GRACE begins from a syndromic or symptom-based perspective, since that's how the patients arrive in the emergency department. Well, I see. So clinical practice guidelines are based on the presentation, not the actual disease or diagnosis. Exactly. The patient doesn't present stating, I'm having unstable angina. Instead, they present with chest pain, abdominal pain, dyspnea, dizziness, or a host of other subjective complaints. Emergency medicine, in my opinion, is the master of transforming undifferentiated complaints with incomplete information into the likelihood of life-threatening disease processes within the first hours of care. Well, I've never had a patient, Chris, come in with a headache and then on their forehead, they had this label saying, I'm a migraine. I am an intracranial hemorrhage. No, wait, I'm meningitis. They come in with symptoms, right? And so I think this is really important. Well, yeah, I've, I've had patients present with other things on their forehead, but not their <laughs> diagnosis. <laughs> but other guidelines begin from the perspective of the diagnosis is already established. Coronary artery disease, cholecystitis, appendicitis, whatever. Three additional pillars of GRACE are that the syndromic complaints are commonly encountered in ED, that the syndrome is associated with significant practice variability, and that that variability or uncertainty creates malpractice angst. Built upon these pillars and this new approach to creating guidelines, we feel that GRACE is additive to existing clinical practice guidelines and certainly not duplicative of ASAP clinical policies. Okay, take us through the process, Chris. How does the committee select the topics and what methods do you follow to create these GRACE guidelines? Well, GRACE uses the GRADE approach, G-R-A-D-E, which stands for Grading of Recommendations, Assessment, Development, and Evaluation. And the GRADE approach stems from that IOM report on creating trustworthy guidelines. We'll include an illustration of the GRADE approach to guideline development in the show notes. But for the listening audience, here's a thumbnail description. The first stage is to identify and invite the key stakeholders for a clinical syndrome, including knowledgeable health, health outcomes researchers, patients with lived experience, and bedside clinicians who care for that patient. Oh, I think it's great to see that you have patients involved right from the beginning. Yeah, we realized that very early on. And, and then the next stage is the panel spends months prioritizing potential key questions and formulating those questions into a PICO format. PICO format is the patient, the intervention, the control group, and the outcomes. And then we develop a systematic review and meta-analyses of direct evidence for each PICO question 
that then becomes the summary of evidence table within our guideline. So you use this PICO format to really focus in on the issue itself. Yeah, exactly. And the GRACE panel then considers indirect evidence along with the direct evidence from the the meta-analyses in structured conversations called this evidence-to-decision framework that considers the quality of the evidence, the imprecision of the studies for that question and those outcomes, the inconsistency of evidence, the balance of potential benefits and harms, the stakeholders' values and preferences, the feasibility of the recommendation, the health equity or inequities of the recommendation, and the resource requirements. The GRACE approach to using GRADE is transparently detailed in multiple videos on our GRACE website. So this GRACE process, it sounds really like labor-intensive. How long does it take? And how much money, like both real hard dollars and gifts in kind, does it take to create a guideline? Yeah, excellent question, Ken. It's not easy. Pushing the pedal to the metal with altruistic volunteerism and exceptional lead writers The GRACE requires about 18 months from start to finish so far. GRACE has a small annual budget from SAM that allows us to pay each writer about $1,000 for 18 months of work, and we estimate about 500 hours of labor for each writer. We've not been offered any gifts or external sources of funding for GRACE. We have sought extramural funding from places like the NIH and HRQ, but so far, federal funding mechanisms to create trustworthy guidelines like the IOM recommends, they don't exist. Those funding mechanisms are not there. This is where the IOM, now called the National Academy of Medicine, could be exceptionally helpful, as well as the great advocates, in catalyzing these non-industry federal funding opportunities for guideline developers. Okay, National Academy of Medicine listeners, and I know we have thousands and thousands of them, time to uh, come up with some money because this group is seriously underpaid for both their time, effort, and expertise. I mean, even doing some simple math on the back of a cocktail napkin, and believe me, they told me there'd be no math, but 500 hours times about $150 per hour equals $75,000. And that first GRACE guideline, I looked at it, and it had 14 authors. So that equals just over $1 million. Those are some dedicated volunteers. Dedicated, I agree wholeheartedly. The emergency medicine community, in my opinion, owes a deep debt of gratitude to each of these individuals who provide their expertise because they care. Like Mel Herbert says, what you do matters, and each GRACE guideline demonstrates just how much our committed colleagues care. Now, sustaining that altruistic effort into the future, that's the next challenge. Okay, so what was the first issue that the GRACE group tackled? Yeah, that first issue was recurrent low-risk chest pain in the emergency department. Well, there are a huge volume of patients with chest pain who come in, and often they will be repeat visitors. What was the key message from the GRACE-1 guidelines? Well, we had eight of them, and we'll put an image of those eight recommendations in the chart, but we looked at things like troponins and the role of stress testing in those chest pain patients, the role of coronary CT, and things like the role of screening for depression and anxiety. Surprisingly, for almost all of those, the level of evidence is very low. In fact, we couldn't even make a recommendation for some of those questions. Well, the next guideline was GRACE 2, and it was on another very common presentation to the emergency department, recurrent abdominal pain. What was the take-home message from that document? Well, uh, yeah, it's low-risk recurrent abdominal pain. So not all abdominal pain covers those, not all low-risk abdominal pain comers. 
but those um, that, that we feel are low risk and, and return to the emergency department. We only had four recommendations this time. We learned our lesson from the first grace and we cut down the scope of work and ended up with four recommendations looking at the role of repeat CT, the role of an ultrasound after a negative IV contrast CT, the role of screening for depression or anxiety in those abdominal pain patients, and treatment-wise, how to avoid using opioids. Well, you wrote a commentary on GRACE too, and it was called A Candle in the Dark, A Role of Indirect Evidence in Emergency Medicine Clinical Practice Guidelines. What were you trying to communicate about indirect evidence? As GRACE matures, we're kind of building the plane as we fly it, and, and we're learning lessons that we think are worth sharing with the emergency medicine community. So we're striving to educate emergency medicine physicians about the advantages and the disadvantages of the great approach. The Candle in the Dark editorial describes our rationale for including indirect evidence as well as our method for differentiating direct and indirect evidence within the context of abdominal pain. Well, you're going to have to help clarify these terms for me. What do you mean by direct and indirect evidence in this context? Excellent question. We had the same question when we started, and we turned to the grade experts at McMaster University mostly for help, but we didn't find much in the way of guidance. (laughs) We spent a few months debating how we would differentiate direct and indirect evidence. Ultimately, we decided to use the PICO question as the root differentiator. If either the patient population, the intervention, the control group, or the outcomes differed from our a priori PICO question, then we labeled that research as indirect. For example, one of our PICO questions was the, the population of adult patients with recurrent low-risk abdominal pain. The intervention was a repeat CT within 12 months of a prior negative CT. The control group is no repeat CT imaging. And the outcome is uh, 30-day surgeries, mortality, admission, or ED returns. If a study included all ED patients with abdominal pain but didn't bother to differentiate low risk from non-low risk, that's indirect evidence because the P differs from our PICO question. So that's how we did that. We looked at the PICO stem, and if any one of those PICO differed, that's indirect. All right. Well, thanks for helping clarify the direct versus indirect. Is there anything else you wanted to highlight? In the editorial, we also wanted to highlight the reality that without a federal funder focused on emergency medicine research at the National Institute of Health, something like a National Institute of Emergency Care that's fully funded, that the recommendation of no recommendation can be made will almost certainly be the end result of emergency medicine clinical practice guidelines into the foreseeable future. 10 years from now, 20 years from now, 50 years from now, we need funding to do this research. In these years immediately following COVID, where emergency medicine unquestionably stood up to the challenges of a -a once-in-a-lifetime global pandemic, I believe the time is now to seek congressional support for this Institute of Emergency Care. Well, emergency medicine does have a lot of uncertainty. Perhaps we're just more comfortable with that than other specialties. We are often faced with making decisions with limited information in a timely fashion. They can be life or death decisions. This constant uncertainty that requires decisions trains us to be comfortable only having a thin slice of data and not being paralyzed with indecision. Back in 2002, John Gallagher questioned the relevance of guidelines for emergency medicine. He accurately noted that publishing guidelines without concomitant education is unlikely to alter the status quo of practice. The Guidelines International Network goes a step further by advocating for each guideline to include a multifaceted implementation tools kit. Speaking of uncertainty, Ken, Some of the most basic components of GRACE were surprisingly undefined anywhere in the literature, including terms like low-risk abdominal pain. There's no PERC score or heart score for abdominal pain. Previously undifferentiated abdominal pain, not defined. Negative CT, not defined. Therefore, the GRACE team spent a considerable amount of time drawing a line in the sand for these definitions. 
All right. So you've done the chest pain one. You've done the low risk abdominal pain one. What's up next for the GRACE group? GRACE 3 is going to address dizziness and it's being led by Dr. Jonathan Edlow. And speaking of implementation tools, GRACE 3 will include a free app for your smartphone that walks physicians through the recommended diagnostic and therapeutic approach to dizziness in the ED, which often avoids unnecessary MRIs. Oh, I see what you did there. It walks you through, even though, well, I guess it's the patients that dizzy, not your dizzy. Okay. So when can we expect GRACE 3 to be published? GRACE 3 will be distributed for 45 days of open commentary in late August of 2022. And depending on the volume and the complexity of external stakeholder feedback that we get, GRACE 3 intends to be published by December 2022. And you can go to our website and you'll find each GRACE product, each published product available open access. Well, is there anything else you'd like to say about guidelines in general or GRACE specifically? Sure. First of all, I cannot express my appreciation for the work of the GRACE methodology team who have been on every one of these guideline documents, including Fernanda Bellelio, Lucas Silva, Sunil Apati, and Samir Sharif, who devoted so much time to basically build the GRACE airplane as we were flying it. Second, much appreciation to Josh Broder for leading the stellar GRACE 2 team. And finally, thanks to Jeff Klein, the Academic Emergency Medicine Editor-in-Chief, and to the SAM board for providing the opportunity to provide the EM community with guidelines on topics that we confront daily in EDs worldwide. And Ken, I still don't consider myself an expert on guideline development, even though I've now helped to develop a dozen clinical policies and GRACE guidelines combined. The meta-science of guideline development and the grade process is simply too complex, and it's evolving so quickly that it's tough to feel 100% confident that our approach has considered every perspective and every alternative or stakeholder value. However, I adamantly believe that the essential clinical practice guideline ingredient is transparency, so that emergency physicians and others understand why the direction and strike the recommendations ended up where they did. Well, clinical practice guidelines certainly do impact what we do. Absolutely. Both strong and weak recommendations. They impact patients and clinicians and quality assurance officers in different ways. So understanding the path to those recommendations is essential. In addition, I live by the motto that it ain't so much what you don't know that gets you into trouble as what you know that just ain't so. And I believe that the value of the great approach and guidelines in general merit closer objective review. Guideline advocates tend to assume that guidelines sit on top of that EBM pyramid, but the proof of concept for that assumption thus far does not exist. Similarly, how can one prove that the value or reproducibility of the ASAP clinical policy approach compared with the GRACE grade-based approach is better or worse? There's work to be done in this meta-science of proving guideline value. Well, can MRAP listeners, you know, participate and suggest a topic for a future GRACE guideline? Oh, absolutely. They, they can suggest future topics by sending an email to grace, G-R-A-C-E, at saem.org, and we'll consider all ideas that adhere to our pillars that we just described. Keep in mind that we intend to avoid topics that the ASAP Clinical Policy Committee has already reviewed so as to avoid duplicative efforts because there are so many clinical scenarios encountered every day for which no guidelines currently exist. Well, Chris, I really appreciate you coming on and talking a little nerdy with me. Oh, Ken, always my pleasure. And you know, they're remaking that 1980s hit, Revenge of the Nerds, and I am expecting to see you and Swami with cameos in that remake. Oh, that would be so much fun to do. (laughs) But Swami will be back next month on the program, and we will be digging into some diagnostic uncertainty even more. But until next month, stay nerdy, everybody. Hey, Michael. Hey, Sanjay. Looks like September is donezo. Official. That's official. So we're back to, we're in football season. 
where UCLA will now be in the Big Ten, apparently. Yeah, you know, I, I worked the uh, overnight shift uh, last night, went to sleep with my life totally normal, woke up to see that we'd left the Pac-12. To so see that our next road trip is going to be to Penn ne- State. Ne- Nebraska. <laughs> That's the closest, yeah. Nebraska. I guess USC is going to the Pac-12 too, so. You know, that, that's our closest away yeah, game. But second closest, Nebraska. Nebraska. Furthest away. Penn State, yeah. College State. That's College Station, right? College Station is A&M. What is it over at Penn State? What's it called? Oh, Happy Valley? No. That's you a, know, it's, Death Valley? It's no, that's a, Nebraska. What, one, of, one of my best friends, know, Chris, Chris Kirak, who's, a, who's an anesthesiologist, is going to be very upset at me for not knowing where Penn State plays. Oh, man. But yeah, so that we're going to be enjoying that. That doesn't start for a couple of years. So let's enjoy our farewell tour to the Pac-12 away games this season. Go Bruins! And uh, while we're rooting for the Bruins, you guys all know what to do. You just do one thing, and you do it well. Root for the Bruins.